Hey listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Last year, for episode 44, I interviewed Paul Cristiano for nearly four hours about his views on a pretty wide range of topics, including how he expects AI to affect our lives in the 21st century, and how he thinks we can increase the chances that those impacts are really positive. That episode was uh, very popular, and uh, Paul is a highly creative and pretty wide-ranging thinker who's always writing new blog posts about topics that range from the uh, entirely sensible to the especially strange. So I thought it would be pretty fun to get him back on to talk about what he'd been thinking about lately. On the sensible side, uh, we end up talking about how divesting from harmful companies might be a more effective way to improve the world than uh, most people, including me, uh, had previously thought. On the stranger side, uh, we think a bit about whether there's any messages that uh, we could leave future civilizations uh, that might be able to help them out. Uh, should humanity go extinct, but intelligent life then uh, re-evolve on Earth some, at some point in the, uh, in the far future. We also talk about some uh, more speculative papers, uh, which suggest that uh, taking creatine supplements might make people uh, a bit sharper, or that uh, being in a stuffy carbon dioxide food room uh, might make people temporarily a bit stupider. Honestly, uh, we just have a lot of fun chatting about some things we personally find uh, pretty interesting. On the more practically uh, useful side of things, though, uh, I get Paul's reaction to my interview with Pushmit Kohli uh, over at DeepMind uh, for episode 48, uh, which uh, came out a few months back. I should warn people that in retrospect, this episode is a a bit heavy on jargon and might be uh, harder to follow uh, for someone who is new to the show. Uh, that's going to get more difficult to avoid over time as we kind of want to dig deeper into topics that we've already introduced in previous episodes. Uh, But we went a a bit further than I'd ideally like uh, this time around. Folks might get uh, more out of it if they listen first to the previous interview with Paul Cristiano uh, back in episode 44. Uh, That's Dr. Paul Cristiano on how we'll hand the future off to AI and solving the alignment problem. Uh, But I think a majority of the episode should still make sense um, even if you haven't listened to, to any of that one. This episode also has the first outtake uh, we've, we've made so far. Uh, I encourage Paul to try recording a section in the interview on a subfield of philosophy called decision theory uh, and some heterodox ideas that have come out of it, uh, like super rationality and uh, a causal cooperation. I planned to spend half an hour on that, uh, but that was really uh, very silly of me. We'd need a uh, full hour just to uh, clearly outline the problem of decision theory and the uh, proposed solutions, uh, if, if we could uh, do it clearly at all. Um, and explaining and justifying the possible implications of the various unorthodox solutions that are out there uh, could go on for another hour or two. And indeed, it is, uh, is really hard to do it all uh, w- without a whiteboard. So at the end of that section, we thought it was uh, more or less a train wreck, though uh, potentially quite a funny train wreck uh, for the right listener. We do come across as a uh, touch insane, which I'm fairly sure we're not. Uh, so if you'd like to be a bit confused and hear what it sounds like for a technical interview to not really work out, uh, you can find a link to the MP3 uh, for that section in the show notes. If you happen to have the same level of understanding of decision theory that uh, I did going into the conversation, you might even learn something. But I can't especially recommend listening to it as a good use of time. Uh, Instead, we'll come back and give decision theory a proper treatment in some other episode in the future. All right, with all of that out of the way, here's Paul Cristiano. My guest today is Dr. Paul Cristiano, back by popular demand, making his second appearance on the 80,000 Hours podcast. Paul completed a PhD in theoretical computer science at UC Berkeley and is now a technical researcher at OpenAI, working on aligning artificial intelligence with human values. He blogs about that work at ai-alignment.com and about a wide range of other interesting topics at sideways-view.com. 
On top of that, Paul is not only a scholar, but also always and everywhere a gentleman. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Paul. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I hope to talk about some of the interesting things you've been blogging about lately, as well as what's new in uh, AI reliability and, and robustness research. But first, uh, what are you doing at the moment and why do you think it's important work? So I guess I'm spending most of my time working on technical air safety at OpenAI. I think the, the basic story is similar to a year ago. That is building AI systems that don't do what we want them to do, that sort of push the long-term future in a direction that we don't like. Seems like one of the main ways that we can mess up our long-term future. That sort of still seems basically right. I've maybe moved a little bit more towards that being a smaller fraction of the total problem, but still a big chunk. It seems like this is a really natural way for me to work on it directly. So I think I'm just going to keep, keep hacking away at that. Yeah, that's the high level. I think we're going to get into a lot of the details probably in some, some questions. We started recording um, the first episode uh, last year, almost exactly a, a year ago, actually. So what, yeah, when it comes to AI safety research and I guess your, your general predictions about how advances in AI are going to play out, have your opinion shifted at all? And, and, and if so, how? Uh, I think the last year has felt a lot like sort of not big surprises and things sort of settling down. Maybe this has been part of a broader trend where like my views five years ago, my view was bouncing around a ton every year. And like three years ago, it was bouncing around a little bit. Um, and now the last year has bounced around even less. Um, so I think my views haven't shifted a huge amount. I think we haven't had either big downward or upward surprises in terms of overall AI progress. That is, I think we've seen things that are broadly consistent with both concerns about AI being developed very quickly, but also like the possibility of it taking a very, very long time. In terms of our approach to AI alignment, again, I think my understanding of what there is to be done has like solidified a little bit and it's like moved more, continues to move from like some broad ideas of what should be done to like here are the particular groups implementing things. Um, I think that that's continuing to happen, but there haven't been big surprises. Yeah, last time we spoke about a bunch of different methods, uh, I guess including AI safety via debate. So having different uh, AIs kind of debate one another, and then we're in a position to, well, hopefully we're in a position to, to adjudicate which one is uh, which one is right. Is, is there any progress on on that approach, or, or any of the other ones that we spoke about? Yeah, so I work on a sub team at OpenAI that broadly works on sort of that idea, the safety via debate, as well as like amplification. I would say that over the last year, a lot of the work has been on some combination of building up capacity and infrastructure to make those things happen, um, sort of scaling up language models and integrating with good large language models. So it's things that understand some of like the reasoning humans do when they talk or when they answer questions, trying to get that to the point where we can actually start to see the phenomena that we're interested in. I think there's probably generally been like a, some convergence in terms of how sort of different, at least different parts within OpenAI, but I think also across organizations have been thinking about possible approaches. So e.g., I guess within OpenAI, for people thinking about this really long-term problem, we mostly think about amplification and debate. There's a sort of on-paper argument that those two techniques ought to be very similar. I think they maybe suggest different emphases on which experiments you run in the short term. But I think as we've been trying things, both the people who started more on the amplification side are running experiments that look more similar to what you might suspect from the debate perspective and also vice versa. Um, so I think there's like less and less like big disagreements about that. I think similarly, like sort of independent thinking at amongst people thinking about long-term safety at DeepMind, I guess I feel like there's less gap between us now. Maybe that's good. It's like easier to communicate and be on the same page and more shared understanding of what we're doing. But I think that compared to a year ago, things feel like this is just related to things settling down and maturing. People are, it's still a long way from being like where almost any normal field of academic inquiry is. Like it's nowhere close to that. It, it, like people who disagree more or just have you know yeah, very different perspectives and yeah they disagree more they less have like a common sense they less have like a mature method of inquiry which everyone expects to make progress like it's a, still a long way away from more mature areas but it is moving in that direction 
this may be a bit random, uh, but do, do you feel like uh, academic um, fields are often held back by the fact that they codify you know, particular methods and particular kinds of evidence and particular worldview that blinkers them to, to other options? And maybe it's an advantage to have uh, this, this field of research be a bit more freewheeling and diverse. I think that's an interesting question. I guess I would normally think of it as like an academic field is sort of characterized by the set of tools and its understanding of what constitutes progress. If you think of the field as characterized by problems, then it makes sense to talk about the field being blinkered in this way or like having value left on the table. If you think about the field as sort of characterized by the set of tools, then that's kind of like the thing they're bringing to the table. And so I would say from that perspective, it's like it's both bad that you can't like use some existing set of tools. That's a bummer. And it's not clear. I think there's a lot of debate of people about how much we should ultimately expect the solutions look like using existing set of tools. That's bad. It's also sort of a little bit bad to not have yet like mature tools that are specific to this kind of inquiry. I think that's more how I think of it. So like, I think many academic fields are not good at, if you think of them as they're answering the set of questions and the only people answering the set of questions, maybe they're like not really set up that optimally to do that. But I think I've shifted to like not mostly thinking of academic fields that way. Uh, so I guess, you know, economics has like problems with its method, but then those are covered by other fields that use different methods would, would be the hope. That's the hope. I think economics is an interesting <laughs> case since there are like a bunch of problems. I think most fields do have this like, there are a bunch of problems that sort of fit in economics and like there's a set of tools economists use. And if there's like a problem that fits in nominally the economics like under their purview, which is not a good fit for their tools, then you're in sort of like a weird place. I think economics also may be because of like there being this broad set of problems that fit in their in their domain, like... Yeah, I think it's not, this distinction is not obvious. Like there's some... It's an imperial field, kind of notoriously, that wants to yeah, go and colonize it or like every other, all, all, all questions that it can can touch on. Yeah. And then sometimes I guess just the method might be all suited to those questions that it wants to tackle. Yeah. Although in some sense, if you view it as like a field has a set of tools that it's using, it's very reasonable to be like going out and finding other problems that are actually, like if you're actually correct about them being immutable to those tools. I mean, there's also a thing on the reverse where like you don't want to like be really that staking claim on these questions or you should be willing to say, look, these are questions that sort of we've traditionally answered, but there are other people, like sometimes those can be answered in other ways. Yeah, it's an interesting framing of problems with academic fields that uh, it's kind of not so much that the field is bad, but maybe that it's tackling the wrong problem or it's, yeah, it's tackling problems that are mismatched to, to the methods. I think about this a lot, maybe because in computer science, you more clearly have problems which... Like it's not so much staked out as like, here's a problem and this problem fits in a domain. It's more like there are several different approaches. Like there are people who come in with like a statistics training and there are people who come in as theorists and there are people who come in as like various flavors of practitioners um, or experimentalists. And they sort of, you can see subfields have like different ways they would attack these problems. And it's more like you sort of understand like this subfield is going to attack this problem in this way. And like it's a reasonable kind of division of labor. Yeah, so uh, let's let's back up. Uh, you talked about running experiments. What kind of experiments are they c- c- concretely? Yeah, so I think last time we talked, we discussed three kinds of big uncertainties or room for making progress. One of them, which isn't super relevant to experiments, is like figuring out conceptual questions about how are we going to approach, like find some scalable approach to alignment. The other two difficulties both were very amenable to different kinds of experiments. So one are experiments involving humans, where you start to understand something about the character of human reasoning. Like you understand, so if we have some hopes about human reasoning, we hope that like in some sense, like given enough time or given enough resources, humans are like universal and could answer some very broad set of questions if they just had enough time, enough room to reflect. So it's like one class of experiments that's sort of getting at that, understanding in what sense is that true and what sense is that false. And so that's a family of experiments I'm very excited about. Uh, and like maybe OpenAI has recently started hiring people, just hired two people who will be scaling up those experiments here. I think Ott has been focused on those experiments and is starting to really scale up their work. So that's one family of experiments. And there's a second difficulty or third difficulty, which is understanding how both theoretical ideas about alignment and also these facts about like how human reasoning work, how those all tie together with machine learning. So ultimately, at the end of the day, we want to use 
these ideas to produce like objectives that can be used to train ML systems. Um, and that involves actually engaging with a bunch of detail about how ML systems work. So some of the experiments are directly testing those details. So saying, can you use this kind of objective? Can machine learning systems learn this kind of pattern or this kind of behavior? And some of them are just experiments that are like maybe more in the family where you expect them to work if you just iterate a little bit. So you sort of expect there is some going to be some way that we can apply language models to this kind of task, but we need to like think a little bit about how to do that and like take a few swings at it. I saw that OpenAI was trying to hire social scientists uh, and kind of making the case that social scientists should get more interested in AI alignment research. Uh, is, this, is this the kind of work that they're doing, running these experiments or designing them? Yeah, that's right. So I think we hired, we we're aiming initially to hire one person in that role. I think we've now made that hire and they're starting on Monday. So they will be doing experiments, trying to understand like, right, if we want to try and use human reasoning in some sense as a ground truth or gold standard. Like, how do we think about that? How do we think about, like, in what sense you could, like, scale up human reasoning to answer hard questions? In what sense are humans, like, a good judge of correctness or, like, incentivize honest behavior between two debaters? Some of that is, like, what are empirically the conditions under which humans are able to do certain kinds of tasks? Some of them are, like, more, like, conceptual issues where, like, humans are just the way you get traction on that because humans are the only systems we have access to that are, like, very good at this kind of flexible, rich, broad reasoning. I mentioned on uh, on Twitter and Facebook that I was going to be interviewing you again, and, uh, and a listener wrote in with a question. Uh, they'd heard, I think, that uh, you thought there's a decent probability that things would work out okay, or that the, the universe would still have quite a lot of value, even if we didn't have kind of a solid technical solution to, to AI alignment. And AI, you know, took took over and was very influential. What's what's the reasoning there? If if that's uh, if that's a correct understanding? Yeah, so I think there's a bunch of ways you could imagine ending up with AI systems that do what we want them to do. So one approach, which is you know, as a theorist, the one that's most appealing to me is to have some really good understanding on paper. Like, here's how you train an AI to do what you want. And we just sort of nail the problem in the abstract before we've even necessarily built a really powerful AI system. This is the optimistic case where, like, we really solved alignment. It's really nailed. There's, like, maybe a second category where you're, like, or this this broad spectrum where, you're like, we don't really have a great understanding on paper of, like, a fully general way to do this. But as we actually get experience with these systems, we get to sort of try a bunch of stuff. We get to see what works. Uh, we get to... You know, if we're concerned about a system failing, we can try and run it in a bunch of exotic cases and just try and throw stuff at it and see, like, maybe if it, like, we stress tested enough, we'll have something that actually works. Maybe, like, we can't really understand, like, a principled way to extract exactly what we value, but we can do well enough at constructing proxies. So it's like this giant class of cases where you're, like, don't really have an on-paper understanding, but you still sort of wing it. Um, I think that's probably not what the asker was asking about. There's, like, kind of a further case where you try and do that and you do really poorly. And, like, as you're doing it, you're like, man, it turns out these systems do just fail in, like, increasingly catastrophic ways. And drawing the line out, we think that could be really bad. Um, I think even in that worst case, like, not only you don't have an on-paper understanding, you can't really wing it very well. I still think there's, like, certainly more than a third chance that everything is just good. And that would have to come through, like, like people broadly understanding that there's a problem, having reasonable consensus about it's a serious problem, being willing to make some sacrifices in terms of how they deploy AI. So I think that at least on paper, many people would be willing to say, like, if really rolling AI out everywhere would destroy everything we value, then we are happy to, like, be more cautious about how we do that um, or roll it out in a more narrow range of cases or, like, take development more slowly. And so people show restraint for long enough to kind of patch over the problems well enough to... Make yeah. Okay. And so somehow there's like a spectrum of like how well some substitution between how much restraint you show and like how much you are able to kind of either ultimately end up with a clean understanding or wing it. Um, one third is like my number if it turns out the winging it doesn't work at all. Like we're like totally sunk such that you have to show very large amounts of restraint. And people have to actually just be like, we're going to wait until there's some much smarter, like we've either used AI to become like much smarter, better able to coordinate, better able to resolve these problems or yeah, something like that. 
you have to wait until that's happened before you're actually able to deploy AI in general. So I think that's still reasonably likely. I think that's a point where like lots of people disagree. I think on both ends. So a lot of people are much more optimistic. A lot of people have the perspective that's like, look, people aren't going to like walk into razor blades and like have all of the resources in the world get siphoned away or like deploy AI in a case where a catastrophic failure would cause everyone to die. Some people have the intuition that like that's just not going to happen and we're sufficiently well coordinated um, to avoid that. I'm like not really super on the same page there. I think it was a really hard coordination problem. I don't know. It looks like we could certainly fail. Um, on the other hand, some people are like, man, we can't coordinate on anything. And like, if there was a button you could just push to destroy things or like with someone with a billion dollars could push to really mess things up, things would definitely get really messed up. Um, and I just don't really know. In part, this is just me being ignorant. And in part, it's me being skeptical of like both of the extreme perspectives. Like the people advocating them are also like about as ignorant as I am of the facts on the ground. I certainly think there are people who have more relevant knowledge and who could have much better calibrated estimates if they understood the technical issues than I do. But I'm kind of at like some pessimism. If things are really, really bad, if we really, really don't have an understanding of alignment, then I feel pessimistic, but not like radically pessimistic. Yeah, it seems like a challenge there is that you're going to have a range or people are going to have a range of confidence about how safe the the technology is. And then you have this problem that whoever thinks it's the safest uh, is probably wrong about that because most people disagree and they're the most likely to, to, to deploy it prematurely. Yeah. I think it depends a lot on what kind of signals you get about the failures you're going to have. So like how much you have, uh, yeah, we can talk about various kinds of like near misses that you could have. I think the more clear those are, the easier it is for there to be enough agreement. That's like one thing. A second thing is like, we're concerned or I'm concerned about like a particular kind of failure that really disrupts the long-term trajectory of civilization. Uh, you could be in worlds where that's like the easiest kind of failure. That's sort of getting things to work in practice um, is much uh, easier than getting them to work like in a way that preserves our intention over the very long term. You could also imagine worlds though where like a system which is going to fail over the very long term is also reasonably likely to be like a real pain in the ass to deal with in the short term, in which case like again it will be more obvious to people. And then I think a big thing is just we do have techniques, especially if we're in a world where AI progress is very driven by large amounts of like giant computing clusters. Uh, in those worlds, it's not really like any person can press this button. It's like one, there's a small number of actors, like the people who are willing to spend say tens of billions of dollars. And two, those actors have some room to like sit down and reach agreements or like, which could be formalized to varying degrees. But it won't be like people sitting separately in boxes making these calls. At worst, it'll be like in that world. At worst, it'll be like a small number of actors who can talk amongst themselves. And at best, it'll be like a small number of actors who agree like, here are norms, we're going to like actually have some kind of monitoring and enforcement to ensure that even if someone disagreed with the consensus, they wouldn't be able to mess things up. Do you think you or OpenAI have made kind of any interesting mistakes in, in your work on AI alignment uh, over the years? I definitely think I have made a lot of mistakes, um, which I'm more in a position to talk about. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> um, so I guess there's, yeah, one category. Or like There's been a lot of years I've been thinking about alignment, so that's a lot of time to rack up mistakes, many of which like aren't that aren't as topical, but like it was a class of intellectual mistakes I feel like I made like four years ago, say, or five years ago, when I was much earlier in thinking about alignment, which we could try and get into. But I guess like my overall picture of alignment has changed a ton since six years ago. And I would say that's basically because like, you know, six years ago, I was not able to reason about, or like I reasoned incorrectly about lots of things. It's a complicated area. I like had a bunch of conclusions I reached. Lots of the conclusions were wrong. That was a mistake. Like maybe an example of a salient update is I used to think of needing to hit this like you really need to have an AI system that understands exactly what humans want over the very long term. And I think my perspective shifted more to something made more like a commonsensical perspective of if you have a system which sort of respects short-term human preferences well enough, then you can like retain this human ability to correct, like course correct down the line. And so you don't need to sort of appreciate the full complexity of what humans want. You mostly just need to have a sufficiently good understanding of like what we mean by this like course correction or remaining in control or remaining informed about the situation. 
I think it's a little bit hard to describe that update concisely, but it does really change how you conceptualize the problem or like what kinds of solutions are possible. So that's an example of like a long ago, or like there's a whole bunch of those that have been racked up over you know many years. Certainly also made a ton of low-level tactical mistakes about what to work on. Maybe a more recent mistake that is salient is like, uh, I don't feel like I've done very well in communication about sort of my overall perception of the problem. And that's not just like expressing that view to others, but also like really engaging with reasons that maybe more normal perspectives are skeptical of it. Um, and I've been trying to work a little bit more and I'm like currently trying to like better pin down, like here is sort of a reasonably complete, reasonably up-to-date statement of my understanding of the problem, like how I think we should attack the problem. Um, and really iterating on that to get to the point where it makes sense to people who haven't spent like years thinking in this very weird style that's not well vetted. Um, and I'm pretty excited about that. But I think that's a mis- that's probably something I should have been doing much more of over the last two years. Yeah, have you seen uh, Ben Garfinkel's uh, recent talk and, and blog post about uh, how confident should we be about all of this AI stuff? I think I probably have seen a Google Doc that's like the Kim post or something. Yeah. <laughs> the gray web. Yeah. Um, yeah, do, do you have any views on it? Uh, if, if you can remember it. <laughs> so I think... There are lots of particular claims about AI that I think were never that well-grounded, but people were kind of confident in, which I remain pretty skeptical about. I don't remember exactly what touches on that touches on in that post, but like claims about takeoff, I think people have had really or like very, very rapid AI progress and like particular claims of like the structure of that transition. Uh, I think people have had like pretty strong, pretty unconventional views. And like I, yeah, I guess to me, it feels like I'm just taking more of an agnostic opinion, but I think to people in the like, safety community, it feels more like I'm taking this like kind of outlier position. That's definitely a place where I agree with Ben's skepticism. Um, I think in terms of like the overall, how much is there an alignment problem? I think it's like right to have a lot of uncertainty thinking about it and to like understand that the kind of reasoning we're doing is pretty likely to go wrong. And like, yeah, I think you sort of have to have that in mind. That said, like, I think it is kind of clear that there is a there there and there's something. So I don't know if he's really disagreeing with that. I think his conclusion is that he it's it's well worth quite a lot of people working on this stuff, but it's a, a lot of the arguments that people have made for for that are like not as solid as as maybe people thought when you when you really inspect all of the premises and think oh, yeah yeah I definitely think it's the case that people have made a lot of like kind of crude arguments and maybe put too much stock in those arguments. One point that he made which stood out to me was uh, there's been technologies that have dramatically changed the world in, in the past, you know, electricity, uh, for example. But it's not clear that working on electricity in the 19th century would have given you a lot of leverage to, to change how the future went. Uh, it seems like even though it was very important, it was kind of just on a particular track. And there was only so much that uh, even a group of people could have, could have steered how electricity was, was used in the future. And it's like possible that AI will be similar. It would be like very important, but also that you don't get a ton of leverage by, by working on it. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. So maybe a few random comments are like, one, it does seem like you can accelerate the adoption. Like if you had an understanding early enough, and I'm not exactly sure how early you would have acted to get much leverage. If an understanding early enough, you could really change the timeline for adoption. So you could really imagine like small groups having pushed adoption forward by six months or something to the extent that like there are a a lot of, yeah, there's like a lot of engineering problems and conceptual difficulties that were like distinctive to this like sort of weird small thing, which in fact did play like a big, you know, sometimes there's part of the overall machine trajectory of civilization, but it really was well leveraged and that like progress in that faster progress in that area seems like it would have had unusually high dividends for like faster overall technological progress. And like maybe going along with that, I think it is also reasonable to think that like if a small group had positioned themselves to like understand that technology well and be like pushing it and making investments in it, they probably could have had, they couldn't like have easily directly steered from a great distance, but they could have like ended up in a future situation where they've like made a bunch of money or are in a position to like understand well an important technology, which not that many people understand well mm-hmm. as it gets rolled out. 
Um, I think that's, again, a little bit different from the kind of thing he's expressing skepticism about, but seems like an important part of the calculus if one is thinking about trying to have leverage by working on AI, thinking about AI. I do think the alignment problem is like distinctive from anything you could have said in the context of electricity. And like maybe that's where I'm, I'm not mostly trying to do the like make investments in AI such that you're in a better position to have influence later or like make a bunch of money. I'm mostly in the like, I think we can identify like a sort of unusually crisp issue, which seems unusually important and can just hack away at that. I think that like seems like it should have a lot of question marks around it, but I don't know of any, I don't really know of historical cases where one of you is like a similar heuristic. And sometimes people cite them and I've like tried to look into a few of them, but like I don't know of historical cases where you would have made a similarly reasonable argument and then ended up feeling really disappointed. Do you have any thoughts on what uh, possible or, or existing um, AI alignment work uh, might might yield the most value for, for each additional person or, yeah, you know, million dollars that it, that it receives at the moment? Yeah. So we mentioned earlier, I mentioned earlier, these three categories of difficulties. I think different resources will be useful in different categories and each of them is going to be best for some resources, like some people or some kinds of like institutional will. So briefly going over those again, like one was conceptual work on like, how is this all going to fit together? If we imagine what kinds of approaches potentially scale to very, very powerful AI systems um, and what are the difficulties like in that limit as systems become very powerful. I'm like pretty excited for anyone who has sort of reasonable aptitude in that area to try working on it. That's something I've been, like, it's been a reasonable fraction of my time over the last year, maybe in, over the long, my entire career, it's been a larger fraction of my attention and something that I'm like starting to think about scaling up again. Yeah. And so this is like thinking, sort of doing theoretical work on sort of directly at the alignment problem, asking like on paper, what are like the possible approaches to this problem? How do we think that will play out? Moving towards like this, having a really nailed down solution that we feel super great about. So that's like one category. And I think like for people... It's a little bit hard to dump money on that, but I think for people who like like doing theoretical or conceptual work, that's like a really good place to add such people. There's a second category that's like the sort of understanding facts about human reasoning, like understanding in the context of debate, like can humans be good judges between arbitrating different perspectives, competing perspectives, and like how would you set up a debate such that in fact the honest strategy wins in equilibrium? Or like on the amplification side, asking about this like universality question, like is it the case that you can sort of decompose questions into like at least slightly easier questions. I'm also pretty excited about throwing people at that. So just running more experiments, trying to actually get practice, like engaging in this kind of weird reasoning and really seeing, can people do this? Can we like iterate and try and identify the hard cases? I'm pretty excited about that. And I think it like involves some overlap in like the people who do those kinds of work, but it maybe involves different people. And there's this third category of like engaging with ML and actually sort of moving from the theory to implementation and also getting in a place where we have infrastructure and expertise and so on to implement implement whatever we think is like the most promising approach. I think that again requires a different kind of person still and maybe also requires like a different kind of institutional will and money um, and is like also a pretty exciting thing to me. That's maybe like both, it can help provide a sanity check for various ideas coming out of the earlier kinds of experiments. And it can also be a little bit more of this like being in a position to do stuff in the future so that like we don't necessarily know exactly what kind of alignment work will be needed, but just having, you know, having institutions and infrastructure and expertise and teams that are like have experience thinking it hard about that question, actually building ML systems and trying to implement, say, here's our current best guess. Let's try and like use this alignment or like integrate this kind of ideas about alignment into state of the art systems. Like just having a bunch of infrastructure that's able to do that seems really valuable. Anyway, so those are like the three categories where I'm like most excited about throwing resources on alignment work. I mostly don't think it's like very hard to talk in the abstract about which one's more promising just because there's going to be like lots of comparative advantage considerations. But I think there's definitely like a reasonable chunk of people that for which I think it's best to go into any of those three 
directions. Yeah, changing gears to something a bit more whimsical, that, that a blog post that I found really charming. You, you've uh, argued recently that a potentially effective way to reduce existential risk uh, would be to leave messages uh, somewhere on, on Earth for, for our descendants to find in, in, in case we civilization goes under or humans go extinct. Um, and then life reappears, intelligent life reappears on the Earth. And, and we may, maybe want to tell them something to, 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 to help them be more successful where, where we failed. Um, do, do you want to kind of outline the argument? Yeah. So the idea is... If, say, humanity, if every animal larger than a lizard was killed and you, like, still have the lizards, like, the lizards kind of have a long time left before the lizards would all die as, like, photosynthesis started breaking down. And, like, I think based on our understanding of evolution, it seems reasonably likely that in the available time, lizards would, like, again, be able to build up to a spacefaring civilization. Like, definitely not a sure thing. And, like, it's a very hard kind of question to answer. But, like, my guess would be more likely than not, the lizards will eventually be in a position to also, like, go travel to space. It's a beautiful image. (laughs) And so, okay, then there's a further, that's one place where you're like, that's a sort of weird thing. And then there's a question like, how much do you care about that lizard civilization? And maybe like related to these other arguments, like related to like weird decision theory arguments about like how nice should you be to other value systems? I'm like inclined to be pretty happy if the lizards take our place. Like, you know, I'd prefer we do it, but like if it's going to be the lizards or nothing, I'd like consider it like a real, I would really like be inclined to help the lizards out. So maybe this is too much of an aside here, but I kind of, in that case, I have the intuition that, yeah, future lizard people or humans now, it's like, I'm not sure which is better. It's like kind of humans were drawn out of the pool of like potential civilizations. Uh, it's not obvious whether we're like better or worse than like uh, if, if you reran history with, with, with the lizards rather than people. I just wanted to uh, jump in because some of my colleagues pointed out that uh, apparently there's some insane conspiracy theory out there about uh, so-called lizard people uh, secretly running the world, which I had not heard of. Uh, and to avoid any conceivable possible confusion, uh, what we're talking about here has nothing to do with, with any such uh, lizard people. Um, lizard people is just our jokey term for uh, whatever intelligent life might one day re-evolve on Earth. Uh, you know, many millions, tens of millions or hundreds of millions uh, into the future. Uh, should humans at some point uh, die out and uh, leave the natural world to uh, just clock along on its own. Uh, Perhaps lizard people was a slightly unfortunate turn of phrase in retrospect, but uh, regardless of that, uh, let's get on with the show. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think this is, to me, like one of the most, it's like related to one of the most like important open philosophical questions, which is just in general, like what kinds of other value systems should you be like how happy with replacing you? I think the lizards would like want very different things from us and like on the object level, the world they created like might be quite different from the world we would have created. I sort of share this intuition of like, I mean, I share the basic intuition of like, I'm pretty happy for the lizards. Like, I feel pretty great. You know, if I'm like considering, should we run a risk of extinction or let the lizards take over? I'm like more inclined to like let the lizards take over than run a significant risk of extinction. But yeah, so like I would be happy if there's anything we could do to like make life easier for the lizards. I'm like pretty excited about doing it. I'm glad we've made this so concrete with the lizard people. <laughs> Get, carry on. Yeah. I say lizards also in part because like if you go too much smaller than lizards, at some point it becomes more dicey. Like if you only had like plants, it's like a little bit more dicey whether they have enough time left. Um, lizards, I think, are like kind of safe-ish. Lizards are pretty big, pretty smart, most of the way to space-bearing. So, yeah, then there's a question of what can we actually do? Why is this like relevant? And it, like the next question is, is there a realistic way that we could kill ourselves and all the big animals without just totally wiping out life on Earth or without like replacing ourselves with, say, AIs pursuing very different values? I think by far the most likely way that we're going to fail to realize our values is like we don't go extinct, but we just sort of are doing the wrong thing and pointing in the wrong direction. I think that's much, much more likely than going extinct. And my rough understanding is that if we go extinct at this point, we will like probably take uh, really most of the most of Earth's ecosystem with us. But I think if you like thought that climate change could like literally kill all humans, then you'd be more excited. So like there's some plausible ways that you could like kill all humans, but not literally kill everything. Um, so like a total, really brutal collapse of civilization. Maybe there's like some kinds of bioterrorism that kill all large animals, but don't kill or kill all humans, but don't necessarily kill everything. 
if those are plausible, then like there's some chance that you end up in the situation where we got the lizards, and now it's up to the lizards to colonize space. In that case, like it does seem like we have this really interesting lever where the lizards will be evolving some hundreds of millions of years. They'll be like in our position some hundreds of millions of years from now. It does seem probably realistic to leave messages. That is to like somehow change Earth such that a civilization that appeared several hundred million years later could actually notice the changes we'd made and could start investigating them. And at that point, we would probably have like if we're able to call the attention of some future civilization to a particular thing, I think then we can encode lots of information for them and we could decide like how we want to use that communication channel. So sometimes people talk about this. They normally are imagining like radically shorter time periods and hundreds of millions of years. And they're normally not being super thoughtful about like what they'd want to say. Um, but I think my guess would be that like right, there are ways you could really substantially change the trajectory of a civilization by being able to send a message from like a much, much more. So if you imagine like the first time that humans could have discovered a message sent by like a previous civilization, it would have been, I mean, it depends a little bit on like how you're able to work this out, but probably at least like a hundred years ago. Um, at that point, like the message might have been sent from a civilization, which is like much more technologically sophisticated than they are. And also which has like experienced an entire civilization, like the entire arc of civilization followed by extinction. And so at a minimum, it seems like you could really change the path of their technological development by like selectively sort of trying to spell out for them or like show them how to develop, like how to achieve certain goals. You could also like attempt all of those things like a little bit more speculative to like help set them on a better course. Be like, you know, you know, really you should be concerned about killing everyone. It's like, here's a, some guidance on like how to set up institutions so they don't kill everyone. I'm like very concerned about AI alignment. So I'd be like very interested in as much as possible being like, here's the thing, which upon deliberation we thought was like kind of a problem. You probably aren't thinking about it now, but FYI, be aware. And like, I do think that would put like, that would put a community of people working on that problem and that future civilization in a like qualitatively different place than if like, it's just sort of, I don't know, it's like very hard to figure out what the impact would be had we stumbled across these like very detailed messages from the past civilization. But I do think it could like have a huge technological effect on the trajectory of development and also like reasonably likely have like a, have a reasonable effect either on like deliberation and decisions about how to organize ourselves or on like other intellectual projects. Yeah, you, you um, give this hypothetical of you know, could could we have made history go better if we could just send like as much text as we wanted back to people in 1600 or 1700. Yeah. Uh, and then it kind of on reflection does seem like, well, yeah, we could just send them like lots of really important philosophy and lots of important discoveries in social science and uh, kind of tell them also the things that we value that like maybe they don't value. And so like speed up kind of the, the, the strains of philosophical thought that we think are, are particularly important. You could also just like choose what technology, like, yeah, like right. pick and choose from all the technologies that exist in our world and be like, here's right. the ones we think are good on balance. Right. Yeah. So it's like you don't give them the recipe for nuclear weapons. Instead, you give them like, you know, the, the, the game theory for like mutually assured destruction so they can or you like tell them everything that we knew about how to sustain international cooperation. So whenever they do develop nuclear weapons, they're, they're in a better position to, to not destroy themselves. Yep. Um, here's how you build a really great windmill. <laughs> yeah, here's solar panels. I mean, why not? Yeah, we could just give them solar panel stuff. Yeah. yeah, you can. I don't know how you would how much good you could do by that kind of intervention. And like, it's a thing that would be interesting to think about a lot more. Um, my guess would be that like there's some stuff which an expectation is reasonably good, but it's hard to know. Yeah. Okay, so since there's a pretty plausible case that if humans went extinct, intelligent life might reemerge. And probably if we thought about it long enough, we could figure out some uh, useful thing that we could tell them that would probably help them and give them a better shot at surviving and, and, and thriving and doing things that we valued. How on earth would you like leave a message that could last hundreds of millions of years though? It seems like it could be like pretty challenging. Yeah, I think there's like two parts of the problem. One part is like calling someone's attention to a place. I think that's the harder part by far. Um, so, for example, if you were to like, you can't just like bury a thing most places on Earth because hundreds of millions of years is long enough that like the surface of the Earth is no longer the surface of the Earth. So, yeah, I think the first and more important problem is like calling someone's attention to a spot um, or to like one of a million spots or whatever. Um, and then the second part of the problem is like having called someone's attention to a spot. Uh, like, how do you actually encode information? How do you actually communicate to them? Um, it's also probably worth saying that like 
this is a blog post I wrote. I expect there, I think there are people who have like much deeper understandings of these problems and have probably thought about many of these like exact problems in more depth than I have. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to speak as if I'm like a, an authority really, on yeah. leaving messages for future civilizations. <laughs> That's right. I've thought about it for like some hours. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. So in terms of calling attention, like I thought of a bunch of possibilities in the blog post and I was kind of interested and like uh, started some discussions online with people like brainstorming possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if we like thought about it a little bit, we could probably end up with a clear sense. Probably the leading proposal so far is like, I think Jan Kovait had this proposal of there's this like particularly large magnetic anomaly in Russia, which is like very easy for civilization to discover quite early, and which is like located such that it's unlikely to move as tectonic plates move. And it seems pretty plausible. It's like a little bit difficult to do, but it's pretty plausible that like you could use sort of modifications to that structure or like locating things and shelling points in that structure in a way that like at least our civilization would very robustly have found. And it's like hard to know how much a civilization quite different from ours would have. You also had just the straightforward idea of a really big and hard rock that's, that juts out of the earth and hopefully will we'll, we'll survive long enough to be a That is a, a very scientist. straightforward idea, yeah. yeah. It's really it's surprisingly hard to make things like that work. Yeah, I guess it's like over that period of time, even like a very uh, durable rock is kind of going to be broken down by erosion. Yeah, also stuff moves so much. Like you put the rock on the surface of the earth, it's like not going to be on the surface of the earth in hundreds of millions of years anymore. It just gets buried somehow. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay. So it's surprisingly well, rough. I really updated a lot towards it being rough. When I started writing this okay. post, I was like, I'm sure this is easy. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Jeez, really basically everything doesn't work what about a bunch of like radioactive waste that would be like detectable by Gaga counters yeah so you can try and do things like you, you have to care about how long these things can last and how easy they are to detect and like how far from the surface they remain detectable but i think that's i think there are options like that that work i think also like magnets remain magnetic longer than i initially thought or like are longer lasting than you might have guessed and like our reasonable bet for a thing that can be easily detected and you made this point that, yeah, you can potentially have like thousands of these sites uh, and you can make sure that in every one there's a map of where all of the others are. So like they only have to find one and then they can just go out and like dig up every single one of them, which like definitely improves the odds. Yeah. Also, there are like some fossils around. So if you like, if you think a million, you have a million like very prone to be fossilized things and it's probably not going to work. Yeah, I haven't thought about that in a while. I think probably if you sat down, though, I think if like if you just took a person and a person spent like some time really fleshing out these proposals and digging into them and consulting with experts, they could probably find something that would work. And then similarly on the like social side, like if you thought about it a really long time, I expect you could find you would sort of have a more considered view about whether there's something to say that would be valuable. And like the first step would be like, do you want to pay someone to spend a bunch of time thinking about those things? Is there someone who's really excited to spend a bunch of time thinking about those things, nailing down the proposals, um, nailing and then like seeing whether they look like a good idea. And then if they look like a good idea spending like millions or tens of millions of dollars you would need to do to actually make it happen. So in terms of like how you would encode this information, uh, it seemed like you thought like probably just etching it in rock would be like a plausible like first pass. That would probably be, be good enough for most of the time. Uh, and then you could probably come up with some better material on which you could like, yeah, etch things that is like very likely to last a very long time. Uh, yeah. At least if it's buried properly. I think other people have thought more about this aspect of the problem. And I think in general, like we have more confidence something will work out. But yeah, I think just etching stuff is like already good enough under reasonable conditions. Yeah. It's like a lot easier to have a little thing that will survive. It's easier to have a small thing that will survive for hundreds of millions of years than to like actually defig- disfigure the earth in a way that will be notable and like would still call someone's attention to it in hundreds of millions of years. Okay, so so, th- so this this brings me to the the main objection I had, which is that the lizard people probably don't speak English, more. and so <laughs> even if we like bury a huge, if, even if we bury Wikipedia, I think they might just find it very confusing. Uh, how how are we clear that we can kind of communicate any concepts to people or to, to lizard people in a hundred million years time? Yeah, I think that's a pretty interesting question. I think that's like goes into like things you want to think about. But I do think like 
when people have historically engaged in the project of like trying to figure out, e.g., like you have a lost language or you like have some relics which you're trying to make sense of, you're really in a radically worse position than like the lizard people would be in with respect to this artifact, since we would have like we would have put a lot of information into it, really attempting to be understood. I think we don't really have examples of humans having encountered like this kind of super information-rich thing that's attempting to be understood. I guess it's like a game you can try and play it amongst humans, and like I think humans can win very easily at it, but it's like unclear the extent to which it's because we have all this common context. I think like in particular, I think humans do not need anything remotely resembling language in order to easily win at this game. Like in order to easily build up a language of concepts just by like simple illustrations and diagrams and so on. Um, I think you would be right to be skeptical of like even when it's not language. Like we just are using all these concepts that are common. We've thought about things in the same way. We kind of know what we're aiming at. I think I'm like reasonably optimistic, but it's like pretty unclear. This is also a thing I guess people have thought about a lot, although I'm in this case a lot less convinced in their thinking than in the like writing stuff really small in a durable way case. Yeah. My understanding was that um, the people who thought about this a lot seemed very pessimistic about our ability to send messages. Like, well, I guess to be honest, the only case I know about is um, there was a project to try to figure out what message should we put at the site where we bury like really horrible nuclear waste. Uh, so you're like putting this incredibly toxic thing under the ground and then you're like, well, we don't want people in the future to like not realize what this is and then dig it up and then and then kill themselves. So there was like quite a lot of people, I guess like linguists, yeah, sociologists, all these people who were trying to figure out like what signals do we put there? What what's, Is it like signs? Is it pictures? Pictures, whatever it is and they, they settled on some message uh, that I think they like drew out in pictures that was uh, I thought absolutely insanely bad because it was like oh, I, it, it, I couldn't see how any like future civilization would interpret it as, as anything other than like religious stuff that they would be incredibly curious about and then would absolutely go and dig it up uh, I, I'll find I'll find the uh, the exact message that they would that they decided to communicate and potentially like re- read it out here and like people could judge for themselves Hey folks, I uh, did look up this message uh, to add it in here so that you can pass judgment on it as well as me. Uh, here it is. This place is a message and part of a system of messages. Pay attention to it. Sending this message was important to us. We considered ourselves to be a powerful culture. This place is not a place of honor. No highly esteemed deed is commemorated here. Nothing valued is here. What is here uh, was dangerous and repulsive to us. This message is a warning about danger. The danger is in a particular location. It increases towards the center. The center of danger is here, of a particular size and shape and below us. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. The danger is to the body and it can kill. The form of the danger is an emanation of energy. The energy is unleashed only if you substantially disturb this place physically. This place is best shunned and left uninhabited. As I said, I, I really think a future civilization, uh, human or otherwise, uh, would be insanely curious about anything attached to a message like that and would probably guess the site was uh, religious in nature. Um, if they hadn't learned about nuclear radiation themselves already, which would you know, probably allow them to figure out that it was a nuclear waste dump, uh, I think they would be much more likely to dig at that spot than if it was simply left uh, unmarked entirely. So I really don't know what the researchers were thinking there, uh, expecting that writing a message like that would be, would be a good idea. But uh, this is kind of a fascinating, a fascinating research project anyway. All right, back to the conversation. But anyway, I mean, they did, they did have this. Oh, I think actually the plan there was to write it in tons of languages that exist today in the hope that like one of those uh, would have survived. But that was like one of the options. Yeah, um, that's not going to be an option not, here. Not an option here. So, yeah. But I think it's quite a different situation. Like, it's different if you like want to make a sign. So someone who encounters the sign can tell what they're saying versus if I want to write someone like 100 million words such so like somehow if they're willing to spend, like if, if we encountered a message from like some civilization that we can tell has technological powers much beyond our own, we're like 
okay, that's really high up on our list of priorities to figure out what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. That's just like a very different situation where they've written this huge amount of content and like it's like the most interesting academic project of all academic, like it sort of goes to the top of like the intellectual priority queue upon discovering such a thing. And I have like a lot more confidence in our ability to like figure something out or civilization, like ours ability to figure something out under those conditions than under like they're walking around, they encounter a sign. They're perhaps somewhat primitive at that point. I also have no idea what's up with it. And it's also just not that much content. Like it's unclear how you, in the case where you like are only giving them like 10,000 words of content or like some pictures, like they just sort of don't have enough traction to possibly figure out what's up. Whereas in this case, we have like, we're not just like having one proposal of how you could potentially build a shared conceptual language. We're like, we have a hundred proposals. We're just trying them all. <laughs> just every proposal, like any fourth grader came up with, that's fine. Throw it in there too. <laughs> like bits are quite cheap. So you can really try a lot of things. We're sort of in a much, yeah, I think it's just a much better position than people normally think about. So I think archaeologists, when they've dug up uh, writing, sometimes they've decoded it by like analogy to other languages that we do have records about. Sometimes they, uh, there's uh, like the Rosetta Stone where it's like, oh, now here we've got like a translation. So then we can like, yeah, we can figure out what the, I think they had like a translation of two of them and then there was a third language that was the same thing. And then they could figure out like what the language sounded like kind of from that and then figure out very gradually like what the words meant. Um, and I think there's other cases where just from context, they've like dug up stones and they're like, what is this? And it turns out that it's a bunch of like financial accounts for a company or they're like figuring out like imports and exports from this from this place, which like makes total sense. You can imagine that they'd be doing that. And, and your hope here is that we will just like bury so much content and it will have like a bunch of pictures, like lots of words, repeating words that like eventually they'll be able to like decode it. They'll like figure out from some sort of context that uh, I guess they, they'll like they'll be flicking through the encyclopedia and then they like find one article about a thing that they can like figure out what it is because they also have this thing they're like trees okay we got like the article about trees and we still have trees and then they kind of like work out well what would I say about trees if I was writing an encyclopedia article about trees and they kind of guess what those words are and then they kind of go out from there we can make things a lot simpler than encyclopedia articles where you can be like here's like a lexicon of a million concepts and like for each of them like or whatever, 10,000 concepts for each of them, like a hundred pictures and like a hundred sentences about them and like a hundred attempts to define them yeah. attempted to organize well. Yeah. Okay. I agree. I think if you went to that level, then probably you could do it. Although some concepts might be extremely hard to illustrate. <laughs> um, yeah. I guess I'm more optimistic about like community. Well, I don't know. To communicating technology seems easier. Yeah. Than like, here's a picture of a steam engine. Yeah. Um, Whereas like maybe philosophy is a bit trickier or, or religion. So uh, in, in the blog post, you uh, suggested that this might be a pretty good bang for buck uh, in terms of reducing existential risk. And I think you had like kind of a budget of $10 million for like a, a kind of min minimum viable product of this. Uh, and you were thinking, yeah, this could like improve their odds of like surviving by one percentage point if we're like very careful about what messages we send them and what, what messages we don't send them. Do, do you kind of still, still think something like that? I guess that the budget of $10 million seemed uh, incredibly low to me. Uh, I guess here we've been kind of envisaging something potentially a lot more ambitious than... Uh, than perhaps what you were thinking about at the time. Yeah, so I think $10 million, I think, does seem like after talking with people about like what the actual storage options are, or, like how to make a message, like how to make it so people could find a message, 10 million seems low and 100 million seems probably more realistic, which makes the cost effectiveness numbers worse. I mean, I think it is worth pointing out that you have to like go separately on that. Like if you imagine three phases, four phases of the project, like figuring out what to say, uh, disfiguring, like somehow making a landmark people can identify actually encoding a bunch of information and then actually writing, like trying to communicate the information, the thing that you wanted to say. If one of those is expensive, you can sort of relatively easily make, bring the others up to the same cost. Um, so we're getting to spend like millions of dollars on each of those phases. I think actually probably, I'm imagining the lion's share of the cost going into the like leaving a landmark, but that still leaves you with millions of dollars to spend on other components, which is like a few people working full time for years. I would have thought that the most difficult thing would be to figure out what to say and then figure out how to communicate it. Because uh, it's like, if we're really talking about like drawing pictures for kind of every word that we think lizard people will be able to understand, that's, that seems like a lot of homework. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I think it's it's hard to ballpark the cost of that kind of work. Like, are we talking like a hundred person years or like a thousand person years? Like, how many how many person years of effort is that? You can like think about how many person years of effort go into like reasonable encyclopedias. It's tricky, like thinking about the costs. Yeah, I think at a hundred million dollars, I feel good about like how thoroughly. I mean, again, you're not going to be able to like have a great answer to like what to send. But you're going to have like an answer supported by like people are going to think for, like a few years. I guess probably like if you're doing this project, you're kind of doing it under a certain set of world. Like this project is already predicated on a bunch of crazy views about the world. And so you're just like, you're making an all out bet on like those crazy views about the world. And it's like when you're doing these other stages, you're also sort of just conditioning on those crazy views about the world being correct, about like what basic kind of thing is important and how things basically work, which I think does in some sense help. Um, Or like you only have to eat those factors for those crazy views being right once. You don't have to like pay them again. Yeah, I guess I just, I've always imagined that like it would take like less than a few person years of effort to produce the like, if I wanted to produce like a, something that could be understood by future civilization, maybe I'm just like way too optimistic about that. And I haven't engaged with any of the communities that have thought about this problem in detail. And totally possible that I'm way off base. But anyway, when I imagine like people spending 10 years on that, I'm like 10 years, that seems pretty good. Yeah. It seems like they're going to have this so nailed. They're going like, <laughs> to have tested it a bunch of times. They're going to have like six independent proposals that are implemented separately. Each of them is going to be like super exhaustive with like lots of lots of nice pictures. Yeah. Nice picture is actually a little bit hard, but like sort of they probably just get these bits and then like, what do they do with all the bits? Yeah. So should listeners maybe fund this idea? Has anyone expressed interest in being the, being the team lead on this? Yeah, I've had some conversations, like very brief conversations about the landmarking step. I think that's probably the first thing I would be curious about, like what is the cost like? Um, I don't think it's a big project to be funded yet. I don't think anyone's really expressed interest in like taking it up and running with it. <laughs> um, I think the like sequence would probably be first like check to see if the landmark thing makes sense and like roughly how expensive a project it would necessarily be. And like then think about the, maybe do like a sanity check on all the details and then start digging in a little bit, like for a few months on like what would you send and how good does it actually look? And then like six months in, you'd be like, now we have a sense of like, well, this is a good deal. Um, well, if one, one, one of you listeners out there is interested in taking on this project, um, send me an email because you sound like a kind of fun person. <laughs> um, do, do you have any other um, neglected or kind of crazy sounding ideas that, that might potentially compare favorably to uh, more traditional options for reducing existential risk? I mean, I do think it's worth caveat. I think if there's any way to try and address like AI risk. That's probably going to be better than this kind of thing <laughs> related to my comparative advantage seeming to be in AI risk stuff. Um, in terms of weird altruistic schemes, I feel like I haven't thought that much about this kind of thing over the last year. I don't have anything that like feels both very weird and very attractive. Okay. <laughs> what about anything that's just attractive? I'll settle. <laughs> I mean, I remain sort of interested in... There's a few things we discussed last time, maybe very shallowly, or maybe we didn't have a chance to touch on that I remain excited about. It's like some basic tests of like interventions that may affect cognitive performance seem like pretty weirdly neglected. It's like right now I'm providing some funding to some clinical psychiatrists in Germany to like do a test of creatine in vegetarians, which like seems pretty exciting. Um, I think that like, like the current state of the literature on carbon dioxide and cognition is like absurd. I probably complained about this last time I was here. It's just no, equally yeah. absurd. Let's, let, let's dive into this. It was, it was a mistake of mine not, not to put these questions in. So uh, yeah, so just just the background on this creatine. There's been some studies in one study in particular that suggested that for vegetarians and potentially for non-vegetarians as well, taking creatine like gives you like a, an IQ boost of like a couple of points. Like, and it was like very measurable, uh, even with a relatively small sample. Like, yeah, this was like a pretty big effect size by the standards of like people trying to make make people smarter. Yeah, those small by the standards of people normally looking for effects. It's like a third of a standard deviation, which is, I guess is like respectable, but it's huge. Is there aren't that many interventions that have that big effect. Yeah, if we can make like everyone three IQ points smarter, that's like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. 
And then there was just kind of not much follow up on this, even though it seems like this could is like way better than most of the other options we have for, for making people smarter, other than I suppose improving health and nutrition. Yeah, so there are there's reviews on the effects in omnivores that's been better studied. I think it doesn't look that plausible it has large effects in omnivores. And there's been some looking into mechanisms and like on terms of mechanisms, it doesn't look great. Like if you look at like how creatine, I don't know much about this area. Like all these areas we're listing now are just like a random shit I'm speculating about sometimes. I really wanna gotta put that up there. Yeah. Should be in a separate category for my views on AI. Anyway, yeah, looking at mechanisms, it doesn't look that great. Like it's kind of, it would be surprising given what we currently know about biology for like creating supplementation to have this kind of cognitive effect. It's like kind of possible and like it's not ruled out in vegetarians. The state in vegetarians is kind of, I think, like one inconclusive thing and then this one really positive result. Um, so it seems just worth doing a reasonably powered check in vegetarians again. And I, I'm pretty, I would be very surprised if something happened, but I think it's possible. Some people would be more surprised. Some people are like, obviously nothing, um, but I'm at the like, you know, five, ten percent seems like a reasonable bet. On the vegetarianism point, when I looked at that paper, it seemed like they'd chosen vegetarians mostly just because they expected the effect to be larger there. Because it is the case that creatine supplementation also increases like free creatine in the body for meat eaters. So Definitely. just to, just to explain for listeners who don't know, um, like meat has some creatine in it, although like a lot less than people tend to supplement with. Yeah. Um, but vegetarians tend to have like less because they're not eating meat, um, and so like the, the supplementation potentially has a larger effect. So most likely that was just like a choice that study made. And then there was like random variation where some studies like I've definitely updated more in the direction of like there are studies showing everything. And it's like very, very easy <laughs> to mess up studies are very, very easy to get. Not even just in the like 5% of the time you have results significant at peak equals 0.05, but just like radically more often than that, you get results that are wrong for God knows what reason. Anyway, so most likely it's just that's a study that happened for a positive result and happened to be studying vegetarians. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the reason they did it. Like, seemed like it should have a larger effect. I think since we've gotten negative evidence about the effects in omnivores, it doesn't seem that likely. Um, although that would also be consistent with them just being like three times smaller in omnivores yeah. um, would be kind of plausible. And then I think it would be compatible with what we know. So you were kind of goddamn like this seems really important, but like people haven't put put, put money into it. People haven't run like enough replications of this. So you just decided or one to, replication, to... <laughs> <laughs> like one pre-registered replication. That's all I want. <laughs> so you were like, I'm going to do it myself. Uh, yeah, t- t- talk about that for a minute. Well, I think I feel like in this case, providing funding is like not the hard part, probably. Um, but I'm happy for stuff like this. I'm very interested in providing funding. I like made a Facebook post like I'm really interested in providing funding. And then EA stepped up and was like, I know I know a lab that might be interested in doing this. Yeah. Put me in touch with them. When when might they have results? Oh, like in a year. I okay. Are you excited to find out? I am. Yeah, I'm excited to see how things go. Um, yeah, and talk, talk about the carbon dioxide one for a minute, because this is one that's also been driving me mad uh, the, the, the last the last few months. Just to seem like carbon dioxide potentially has yeah enormous effects on people's people's intelligence and uh in like offices like but you potentially just have extremely and, and lecture halls especially you just have potentially incredibly elevated co2 levels that are kind of dumbing us all down when we most need to be smart yeah i reviewed the literature like a few years ago and i've only been paying a little bit of attention since then but i think the current state of play is there was one study with preposterously large effect sizes from carbon dioxide in which the methodology was put people in rooms dump some gas into all the rooms some of the gases were very rich in carbon dioxide and the effect sizes were absurdly large. So they were like, if you compare to like the levels of carbon dioxide that occur in my house or like in the house I just moved out of, the most carbon dioxide rich bedroom in that house had like one standard deviation effect amongst Berkeley students on this test or something, which is absurd. That's yeah, just like that's totally like, absurd. <laughs> so it's almost certainly... Well, well it's, like it's, it's such a large effect that you should expect that like people when they walk into a room with carbon dioxide, like with, we have elevated carbon dioxide and they should just feel like idiots at that point or they should feel like noticeably dumber in their own minds. Yeah, you would think that. And like to be clear, the rooms that have levels that high, people can report like I feel it feels stuffy. Mm. And so part of the reason the methodology in the paper is like just dumping in carbon dioxide is to avoid like if you make a room naturally that like CO2 rich, it's going to also just be obvious that you're in the 
intervention group instead of the control. Yeah. Although to be fair, even if, I don't know, at that point, like even a placebo effect, they'll are just something. Yeah. I think almost certainly there's just like, almost certainly that seems wrong to me. Although maybe this is not a good kind of thing to be saying publicly on podcasts. And this is like a bunch of respected researchers on that paper. Anyway, so then I was like, it'd be great to see a replication of that. There was subsequently a replication with exactly the same design, which also had like, you know, P equals 0. 0.0001. So now I've got like the two <laughs> precise replications with P equals 0. 0.0001. So that's kind of where we're at. And also the effect is stupidly large, like yeah. so large. Like you really, really need to care about ventilation if that effect is right. Yeah. Like this room probably is, this is madness. Well, yeah, this building is pretty well ventilated. Okay. <laughs> but still, like we're, we're like at least a third of a standard deviation dumber. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure dear listeners, you can hear us get dumber <laughs> over the course of this conversation as we fill this room with poison. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess like potentially the, the worst case would be in kind of uh, yeah meeting rooms or boardrooms where people are like having very long like yeah prolonged discussions about difficult is- issues. They're just getting like yeah, progressively dumber as, as the room fills up with carbon dioxide and potentially be like more irritable as well. Yeah, it'd be pretty serious. And I think that like people have often like cite this in attempts to like improve ventilation, but I think people do not take it nearly as seriously as they would if they believed it, which I think is right because I think it's almost certainly the effect is not this large. But if it was this large, you'd really want to know and then sort of this be, is like, like lead poisoning or something. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I guess, well, this has been enough to convince me to uh, keep a window open whenever I'm sleeping. I like really don't like sleeping in a room that, with, that has like no, yeah, no ventilation or no open door or window. Uh, maybe, maybe I just shouldn't worry because like at night, who really cares like how smart I'm feeling <laughs> while I'm dreaming? But yeah, I don't know what's up. I also haven't looked into it as much as maybe even I should have, but I would really just love to be able to say like, it's not a hard, the effects are large enough that it's also short term enough that it's just like extremely easy to check. In some sense, it's like, what are you asking for? There's already been a replication. But like, I don't know. The studies use like these cognitive batteries that are like not great. If the effects are real, you should be able to detect them like in very, basically any, with any instrument. Kind of at some point, I just like want to see the effect myself. You know, I want to actually see it happen. I want to see the people in the rooms. Seems like there's a decent academic incentive to do this, you'd think, because like you just end up kind of being famous if you like pioneer this issue that turns out to be extraordinarily important and then like causes buildings to be redesigned. I don't know. It could just be a big deal. I mean, even if you can't profit from it from in a financial sense, like wouldn't you just want the, the kudos for like identifying this massive unrealized problem? Yeah. I mean, to be clear, I think a bunch of people work on the problem and we do have like at this point, there's like, I think there's the original, the things I'm aware of, which is probably out of date now is like the original paper, a direct replication and a conceptual replication all with like big looking effects, but all with like slightly dicey instruments. The conceptual replication is funded by like this group that works on ventilation, unsurprisingly. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Big air quality. <laughs> yeah. I think that like probably the take of academics, like sort of insofar as there's a formal consensus process in academia, I think it would be that the effect is real. It's just that like no one is behaving as if the effect of that size actually existed. And I think they're kind of right to be skeptical of the process in academia. I think that does like make the situations a little bit complicated in terms of like what you exactly get credit for. And I think the people who would get credit should be, and like rightfully would be the people who've been investigating it so far. This is sort of more like checking it out more for checking it out for people who are skeptical. Although like everyone is kind of implicitly skeptical given how much they don't treat it like an emergency when carbon dioxide levels are high. Yeah. Including us <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh, well, kudos to you for, for funding that, that creatine thing. I kind of, yeah, it'd be, be good if like more people took the initiative to like really insist on like funding replications for issues that, that, that seemed important where, where they're getting neglected. Yeah, I think a lot of it is like, it's a great, there are lot. I feel like there are lots of good things for people to do. I feel like people are mostly the bottleneck, just like people who have the relevant kinds of expertise and interests. This is like one category where I feel like people could go far and I'm excited to see how that goes. Last year, uh, OpenAI published uh, this uh, blog post, which got people really excited, uh, showing that there'd been a huge increase in the amount of uh, compute used to train cutting edge uh, ML systems. I think for, for the algorithms that had absorbed the most compute, there was a 300,000 fold increase uh, in, in the amount of compute that had gone into them over, over six years. Uh, and it seemed like that had been a, 
uh, potentially a really big driver of uh, like more impressive AI capabilities uh, over, over recent years. Would that, would that imply kind of faster progress going forward? Or do you think it will kind of slow down as the increasing compute kind of runs its course and it gets, gets harder and harder to, to throw, more, uh, throw more processes at, the, at these problems? Uh, I think it just depends on what your prior perspective was. So if you were like had a prior perspective where you were eyeballing progress in the field and being like, does this feel like a lot of progress? Then in general, it should be bad news or like not bad news. It should like make you think AI is further away. And then you're like, well, there was a lot of progress. I sort of had some intuitive sense of how much progress that was. And now I'm learning that that rate of progress can't be sustained that long or like a substantial part of it has been this unscalable thing, right? So I mean, we could talk about how much more you could go, but like maybe you had a million X over that period and you can have like a further thousand X or something like that, maybe 10,000 X. I guess it's when you start hitting, well, I suppose there's only so fast that processes are getting faster. And then there's also just like the cost of buying tons of these things. And people were able to ramp it up because previously it was only a small fraction of the total costs of their projects. But I guess it's now getting to be like a pretty large fraction of, of the total cost of all of these AI projects is just just buying enough processes. Yeah, a lot of things have a large compute budget. I mean, it's still normally going to be small compared to staff budget, and you can go a little bit further than that, but it's getting large. And like you should, you should sort of expect, if you're at the point where you're training human-level AI systems, that the cost of like the compute cost for this training run should be like a significant fraction of global output. Um, and so you could say like maybe this sort of trend could continue until you got up there. It's probably not at this pace. It's going to have to slow down a long time before it gets to like we are spending two percent of GDP on computers doing AI training. Yeah, so if you had that perspective where you're eyeballing progress, then like I think it should generally be an update towards longer timelines. I think if you had a perspective, and this is sort of more where I'm normally coming from, where you're like, man, it's really hard to tell. Like it's very hard to eyeball progress and be like, how impressive is this? Like yeah. how impressive <laughs> is it to beat humans at chess or beat humans at Go or to classify images as well? Like or to do this particular image classification task. I find it very hard to really eyeball that kind of progress and make a projection. Um, I think if instead your estimates were coming from like, well... We think there is sort of some more, we have like some sketchy ways of estimating how much compute might be needed. Like we can make some sort of analogy with the optimization done by evolution or by an extrapolation of like training times or by like arguments about sort of other kinds of arguments about the human brain, which are really anchored to amounts of compute. Then I think you might have a perspective that's more like, well, this tells us something about sort of on paper, like these arguments would have involved using large amounts of compute. There's a lot of engineering effort in that kind of scale up. There's a lot of genuine uncertainty, especially if you're talking about moderate timelines of like, will that kind of engineering effort actually be invested? And will that kind of willingness to spend actually materialize? Um, I think that might make you move in the direction of like, yes, apparently people are putting in the effort and like engineering progress is reasonably brisk. So like if instead you were doing an estimate that was really driven by like how much compute, like this is sort of the style of the old estimates futurists made, right? If you look at like Moravec, like one of the earlier estimates of this flavor, and Kurzweil is a very famous estimate of this flavor where they're like, it really matters like how much compute you're throwing at this task. If you have that kind of view and then you see that compute spending is rising really rapidly, I guess that's evidence that like maybe it can continue to rise and therefore like it will be shorter than you would have thought. Yeah, some people uh, seem to think that uh, we may be able to kind of create a general artificial intelligence uh, just by using the algorithms that we have today, but, uh, you know, waiting for another decade or two worth of processing power to, to come online and pro- progress in the chips and just uh, building that infrastructure. How, how realistic do you, do you think that is? Is, is, that, is that a live possibility in your mind? Uh, I think it's really hard to say, but it's definitely a live possibility. Yeah, I think a lot of people have an intuitive reaction. Some people have like an intuition that's very much like that's obviously how it's going to go. And I like don't I, I don't think I sympathize with that intuition. Some people on the other side have like an intuition that like obviously they're really important things we don't yet understand, which will be like difficult. So like it's hard to know how long they will take to develop and it's gonna be much longer than the amount of time required to scale up computing. I also like I'm not yeah, I'm not super sympathetic to that either. I kind of feel like, yeah, it's really hard to know. It seems plausible. Um it's hard to rule it out on a priori grounds. Our observations are like 
pretty consistent with things being mostly driven by compute, where like you could sort of think of it as like what is the trade-off rate between like compute and progress, conceptual progress or algorithmic progress. I think our observations are pretty compatible with like a lot of importance on compute and also are compatible with scale up of existing things eventually getting you to. Yeah, I guess that's like definitely a view I have that eventually enough scale up will certainly almost certainly work. Um, it's just a question of how much and like, was that sort of what you're going to be seeing over the next one to two decades? Or is it like going to take you far past physical limits? Overall, I end up like just pretty uncertain. I think like lots of things are possible. Yeah. How does this question of uh, the importance of compute relate to uh, Moravec's uh, paradox? And I guess what, yeah. what is that for the audience of people who haven't heard it? Yeah, so this is the general observation. There are some tasks humans think of as being like intellectually difficult. Maybe like classic examples like playing chess. And there are other tasks that they don't think of as computationally difficult that are like, you know, picking up an object. Yeah, looking at looking at a scene, seeing where the objects are, picking up an object, manipulating it. And like, it has seemed to be the case that the tasks that people think of as traditionally intellectually challenging were like easier than people suspected relative to the tasks people thought of as not that intellectually demanding. It's not super straightforward because like there's still certainly big chunks of like intellectual inquiry that like people have no idea how to automate. I think that's the general pattern. You mean like, for example, humans think of you know, uh, philosophy is difficult and it's also hard for computers to do philosophy or they don't seem to be beating us at that. Yeah. Or like mathematics or science or I guess people might often think to a human, it feels sort of similar maybe to be doing mathematics and to be playing a really complicated board game. Um, but to a machine, those tasks are not, yeah, they're not that similar. But the board game's way easier. Yeah. yeah. Board game and turned out was very, very easy. <laughs> Um, relative to all the other things, even for like, at this point, it sort of goes a reasonable guess for the hardest board game. It was like much easier than any of these other tasks for humans to automate. Yeah. So I think, I mean, in general, part of what's going on there is like the reasoning humans have conscious access to is just like not that computationally demanding. Like we sort of have some understanding and maybe this is part of the very early optimism about AI. We understand that like when a human is like consciously manipulating numbers or symbols or like actually casting their attention to anything, they're just not doing things that fast. You know, like a human is lucky if they can be doing like hundred operations per second. That's like kind of insane. If like a human is able to multiply numbers at a kind of speed that implies that or something, you're like, wow, that's incredible. But when a human is doing sort of underneath that, there's this layer, which is using vastly, vastly more computation. And so like, in fact, a lot of the difficulty, especially if you're in compute centric world is like, when you look at a task, you say, how hard is that task for a human relative to a machine? A lot of the question is like, how well is a human leveraging all the computational capacity that they have when they're doing that task? And for these tasks that like any task that is involving conscious reasoning maybe is less likely, at least the conscious part is sort of not doing anything computationally interesting. And then you sort of have this further issue for things like board games, where it's like a human is not under much selection pressure to use. A human is not really evolved to play board games well. They're like not using much of the compute in their brain very well at all. I think like best guess would be if you evolved, you could evolve like much, much tinier animals that are much, much better at playing board games than humans. Yeah, isn't it the case that uh, the human brain um, just has a ridiculous fraction of it uh, devoted to visual processing? So in fact, that has just required a ton of compute, uh, and I guess also uh, evolution to, to to make to, to use that part of the brain well. Yeah, I don't know offhand what the number is, but sort of when we're talking about like the log scale, it just doesn't even matter that much. It uses a reasonable like vision uses a reasonable chunk of the brain, and it's extremely well optimized for it. Mm-hmm. So like when people play board games, they're also probably leveraging some very large fraction of their brain. And again, the the main problem is like visual cortex is like really optimized for doing vision well and like they're really using their brain for all that and like you're sort of the luckiest case when you're doing mathematics or playing a game is like somehow it like has enough makes enough intuitive sense or maps on well enough intuitively you can build up these abstractions that allow you to leverage your brain like the full power of your brain to do that task but it's like pretty un- unusual and that's not obvious a priori like this is kind of just an after the fact story like you could imagine yeah people are actually able to like sort of use the entire machinery of visual processing to like play some board games you can imagine that I think that's actually also kind of a live possibility. So if we talk about Go, for example, and we look at like the way that we've now resolved Go, 
the amount of compute you would need to beat humans at Go using entirely a brute force strategy, like using like alpha beta search or something, is kind of a lot, even compared to like the human visual cortex or human visual system more broadly. And like, I think you could make a plausible story. You could make a plausible case that like people are able to use like a lot of that machine, like they're able to reuse a lot of machinery when playing Go and also a slightly lesser extent chess for doing like position evaluation intuitions about how to how to play the game. You're saying that you think the the part of the brain that does visual visual processing is kind of getting brought online to to notice patterns in Go and uh, yeah, it's getting co-opted to, to to do the board game work. Yeah, at least that's plausible a priori and sort of consistent with our observations of how hard it is to automate the game. Yeah, we just don't know very much. Lots of things are consistent with our observations. Do you hope to find out that we're constrained by a uh, compute or algorithmic progress? Yeah, so I generally think it's, I mean, in some sense, it's not going to be a being constrained by one or the other. It's going to be those some like marginal returns to each. I'm like, what is the rate of substitution between more compute and more algorithmic progress? In general, I think it seems better from a long-term perspective if like it takes a lot of algorithmic progress to substitute for a small amount of compute. So the more you're in that world, like the more concentrated different actors compute needs are. So at the point when you're building really powerful AI systems, sort of everyone who's building them is going to have to use, I mean, again, if the world is sort of paying attention, they're going to be using a very large fraction of their computational resources. And any actor who wants to develop very powerful AI will be also using very, very a reasonable fraction of the world's resources. And that like sort of means that it is much easier to know who is in that game. It's much harder for someone to unilaterally do something. It's much easier for the players to be like having a realistic have a realistic chance at like monitoring enforcement and also just have a realistic chance of like getting in a room and talking to each other. Probably not literally a room, but like reaching kind of understanding and agreements. That's one thing. And maybe the other thing is like the harder it is for algorithmic progress to substitute for hardware progress, the like slower the subsequent rate of progress is likely to be relative to what we've observed historically. So if you're in a world where like it turns out that just clever thinking really can drive AI progress extremely rapidly and the problem is just that we haven't had that much clever thinking to throw at the problem, you can really imagine as one scales up AI and is able to automate all that thinking, having like a pretty fast, pretty fast ongoing progress, which might mean there's like less time between when sort of long-term alignment problems become sort of obvious and start mattering and AI can start helping with them and the point where like it's catastrophic to have not resolved them. So like just generally if algorithmic, if clever ideas can shorten that period a lot, that's a little bit bad. It's a little bit less likely that the automation, like that AI will have an incredible overnight effect on like the rate of hardware progress. I mean, it will also presumably accelerate it. Like automation will help there as well. But So uh, you think if compute is what uh, predominantly matters, then it's going to be a, a more gradual process. We'll, we'll have like longer between the point when machine learning gets uh, starts to get used for, for important things and we start noticing where they work and where they don't work. Uh, and when like a lot of things are getting delegated to, to machine learning relative to the algorithmic case where it seems like you get like really quite abrupt uh, changes in the, in, in the capabilities. Yeah, I think a lot of that, and this could also change if the nature of AI research changed, but like a lot of that is from hardware being like this very mature industry with like lots of resources being thrown at it and like performance being pretty well understood and like it would be hard to like double investment in that. And also like it's not that sensitive to like weird questions about like quality of human capital or something. Yeah. You just sort of understand you have to do a lot of experimentation. It's relatively capital intensive. There's quite big lags as well. Yeah. So it just seems like generally it would be more stable and sounds like good news. And this is like one of the reasons one might give for being more excited about faster AI progress now. But you might think, and it's probably the biggest reason to be more excited is like, if you have faster AI progress now, you're in the regime where we're sort of using, if you manage to like get to some frontier, we're using all the available computation as well as you could, then like subsequent progress can be a little bit more stable. And if you have less AI progress now and like at some point people only really start investing a bunch once it becomes clear they can automate a whole bunch of human labor, um, then you have this more like, yeah, whiplash effect where you 
have a burst of progress as people really start investing. Yeah, a few weeks ago, um, we published a conversation with uh, Pushmit Kohli, uh, who's an AI robustness and reliability researcher at, at DeepMind over in London. Um, I guess to, 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 to heavily summarize uh, Pushmit's views, uh, I think he made, made a couple of uh, key claims. One is was that um, alignment uh, and robustness issues, in his view, kind of appear everywhere um, throughout the development of, of machine learning systems. So they kind of require some some degree of attention from from everyone who's working uh, in, in the field. And um, according to Pushmeet, this kind of makes the distinction between safety research and non-safety research uh, somewhat vague and, and blurry. And he, and he kind of thinks uh, yeah, people who are working on capabilities are also kind of helping with safety and, 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 impro- and improving reliability um, also um, improves capabilities because you, you then you can actually design algorithms that do what you want. I think, uh, secondly, I, I think he thought that an important part of reliability and robustness is going to be uh, trying to faithfully communicate our desires to machine learning algorithms. And that this is kind of analogous, although a harder instance of the challenge of just communicating with, with other people, uh, getting them to really under, understand what we mean. Although, of course, it's uh, easier to do that with other humans than, than with other kinds of, yeah, with animals or, or machine learning algorithms. Um, and, and a third point um, was, I guess, just a general sense of optimism that, that DeepMind is, uh, is working on this issue quite a lot and, and, and they're keen to hire more people to, to, to work on, on these problems. Um, and I guess a sense that probably we're going to be able to gradually fix these problems with AI alignment as, as we go along and machine learning algorithms uh, get, more, get more influential. Uh, I know you haven't had a chance to, to, to listen to the whole interview, but uh, you skimmed over skimmed over the transcript. Firstly, uh, yeah, wh- where do you think uh, Pushmeet is, is getting things right? Uh, where do you agree? So I certainly agree that there is this like tight linkage between getting AI systems to do what you want and making them more capable. Um, I agree with the basic optimism that people will need to address the like getting AI systems to do what we want problem. I think it is more likely than not that people will have a good solution to that problem. I think even if you didn't have sort of long-termists, maybe there's this interesting intervention of like, should long-termists be thinking about that problem in order to increase the probability? I think even like absent the actions of the long-termists, there's like a reasonably good chance that everything would just be totally fine. So in that sense, I'm I'm on board with those claims, definitely. Yeah, I think that I would disagree a little bit in thinking that there is a meaningful distinction between activities whose main effect is to change like the date by which various things become possible and activities whose main effect is to like change the trajectory of development. I think that's sort of the main distinguishing feature of like working on alignment per se. Sort of you care about this like differential progress towards being able to build systems to do what we want. I think in that perspective, it is the case like the average the average contribution of AI work is like sort of almost by definition like zero on that front because it's sort of bringing the entire, if you just increased all the AI work by like a, a unit, you're just bringing everything forward by like one unit. And so I think that does mean there's like this well-defined thing, which is like, can we change the trajectory in a way? And that's like an important problem to think about. I think there's also a really important distinction between the kind of failure which is most likely to disrupt like the long-term trajectory of civilization and the kind of failure which is most likely to be like an immediate deal breaker for systems actually being useful or like, producing money. And maybe one way to get at that distinction is like, I mean, it's related to the second point you mentioned, that communicating your goals to an ML system is very similar to communicating with a human. I think there is a hard problem of communicating your goals to an ML system, which we could view as a capabilities problem. Like, are they able to understand things people say? Like, are they able to form the kind of internal model that would let them understand, like, what I want or understand? It's sort of, you know, in some sense, it's very similar to the problem of, like, predicting what Paul would do, or it's like a little slice of that problem, like predicting under what conditions Paul would be happy with what you've done. That's most of what we're dealing with when we're communicating with someone. We would be totally happy if I'm talking with you. I would be, like, completely happy if I just managed to give you a perfect model of me then the problem is solved. I think that's like a really important kind of AI difficulty for making AI systems actually useful. I think that's like less core to the, that's like less the kind of thing that could end up pushing us in a bad long run direction. Mostly because like we're sort of concerned about the case, we're concerned about behavior as AI systems become very capable and have a very good understanding of the 
like of the world around them, of the people they're interacting with. And the really concerning cases are ones where AI systems actually understand quite well, like what people would do under various conditions, understand quite well, like what they want, what we think about as normal communication problems between people, but are like not motivated to act in sort of understand what Paul wants, but aren't trying to help Paul get what he wants. And I think that a lot of the interesting difficulty, especially from a very long run perspective, is really making sure that there's no gap opens up there. Again, there's like a the gap between the problems that are most important on the very long run perspective and the problems that people will like most be confronting in order to make AI systems economically valuable. Um, I do think that like there's a lot of overlap. Right? There are both of those problems that people are working on that make AI systems more valuable are also helping very directly with like the long run outcome. But I think if you're interested in like differentially like changing the trajectory or improving the probability that things go well over the long term, you're sort of more inclined to focus precisely on those problems which like won't be essential for making AI systems economically useful in the short term. Um, I think that's really distinctive to like what your motivation is or why you, yeah, how you're picking problems or prioritizing problems. One of the bottom lines for, for Wishmeet, I guess, was that um, people who want to make sure that AI goes well, that they, they needn't be like especially fussy about whether they're working on something that's safety specific or something that is just building a new product that, that, that works well using machine learning. Uh, it sounds like you're, you're a little bit more skeptical of that, or you think ideally people should, you know, in the medium term, be, be, be aiming to work on things that seem like they disproportionately push on, on, on robustness and reliability. Yeah, I think people who are mostly concerned about long-term trajectory, they sort of face this dilemma in every domain where, like, if you live in the world where you think that almost all of humanity's problems, like almost all of the most serious challenges to humanity are caused by things humans are doing, or like by things not only that humans are doing, but by things humans are doing that we would often think of as like part of productive progress, part of the goal, like we're building new technologies, but those technologies are also the things that pose the main risks, then you kind of have to be picky if you're a person who wants to change the long-term trajectory. Just because like the average, yeah, you're just sort of like, I probably am helping address those problems if I go work, if I just go do a random thing, I go like work on a random project, make a random product better. I am like helping address the kinds of problems we're concerned about, but I'm also like at the same time contributing to like bringing those problems closer to us in time. And it's sort of like roughly a wash if you're like on the average product, making the average product work. And there are like subtle distinctions we could make of like, I think if you are motivated to like make products work well, like if you're like, not only do I want to like do the thing that's most economically valuable, I want to have like more of an emphasis on like making this product robust. I think you're just generally going to like make a bunch of low level decisions that will be like helpful. I definitely think that there's like a big, you can have a pretty big impact by being like, yeah, fussy about which problems you work on. I guess there's this kind of open question of whether we should be happy if uh, AI progress across the board just goes faster. Like what, what if, yeah, we can just like speed up the whole thing by 20%, uh, both or, yeah, all of the safety and capabilities. As far as I understand, there's kind of no consensus on this. People, people vary quite a bit on, uh, on how pleased that'd be to see everything speed up in proportion. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think my take, which is a reasonably common take, is like it doesn't matter that much from an alignment perspective. Like mostly it will just accelerate the time at which everything happens. And there's like some second order terms that are like really hard to reason about, like how good is it to have more or less computing hardware available? Um, or how good is it for there to be more or less kinds of like other political change happening in the world prior to the development of powerful AI systems? There's like these kind of higher order questions where people are like very uncertain about whether that's good or bad. Mm-hmm. But as my take would be, the net effect there is like kind of small. And the main thing is like, I think that's much more accelerating AI is like matters much more on a like next hundred years perspective. If you care about welfare of like people and animals over the next hundred years, then like acceleration of AI looks reasonably good. And so I think that's like the main upside. The main upside of faster AI progress is that people are going to be happy over the short term. I think if you care about the long term, it is like roughly a wash and people could debate whether it's like slightly positive or slightly negative, but mostly it's just accelerating where we're going. Yeah, this has been one of the trickier questions that we've tried to answer in terms of giving people concrete career advice. 
Uh, it seems seems to me if you're someone who you know has done a PhD in ML or is a, yeah very good at, M- at ML, but you currently can't get a position that seems especially safety focused, um, or it's going to like disproportionately affect safety more than capabilities. It is probably still good to take a job that just um, advances AI in general, uh, mostly because uh, you'll like be reaching the cutting edge potentially of like what's of what's going on and improving your career capital a lot and having like relevant understanding. And, and the work, I guess, you kind of think is kind of cl- close to a wash. It's like speeds things up a little bit, like everything goes in proportion. It's not not clear whether that's good or bad. But then you can potentially later on uh, go and work on something that's uh, that's uh, more alignment specific, and that kind of is the the dominant term in the in the equation. Uh, does that seem kind of kind of reasonable? Yeah, I think that seems basically right to me. I think there's some intuitive hesitation with a family of advice that's like, you should do this thing, which we think is roughly a wash on your values now, but there'll be some opportunity in the future where you can sort of make a call. I think there's like some intuitive hesitation about that, but I think that is like roughly right. So if you like, imagine if you offered to Paul, like there's two possible worlds in one, there's like twice as many people working on machine learning and AI, but half of them like really care about like the long term and ensuring that AI is developed in a way that's good for humanity's long term. I'm like, that sounds like a good trade. Like we maybe then have less chance, like less opportunity to like do work right now. I think that's the main negative thing. There'll be less time to think about the alignment problem per se. But like on the other hand, it just seems really good if like, it seems really good if a large fraction of the field really cares about making things go well. I just expect a field that has that character to like be much more likely to like handle issues in a way that's like good for the long term. And like, I think you can sort of scale that down. Like it's easiest for me to imagine the case for like a significant fraction of the field is like that. But I think that if anything, like the marginal people at the beginning are like having a probably larger, like a better cost benefit analysis for them. Yeah, I guess uh, I was suggesting that this would be the, the thing to do if you couldn't get yeah, a job that was like alignment specific already. So you know, yeah. they, they want to join uh, your, your team, but they're like just not quite good enough yet. They need to learn more or potentially there's just only so fast that the team can grow. So even though they're good, it's you just can't hire as, as quickly as, as people are coming on board. Um, yeah. But I suppose you have to make sure that yeah, when people if people go into these roles that we think are currently kind of just neutral but good for good for improving their skills, that they don't uh, don't forget about that that uh, that the original plan was at some point to to switch to something different. <laughs> uh, I guess there's a bit of a trap. It seems like people just in general they they tend to get stuck in doing what they're doing now and convince themselves that whatever they're doing is is actually really useful. Um, so you might think yeah, it would be good to go in and then switch out, but I you might have some doubts about whether in fact you will follow through on that. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I'd be even happier in the world, certainly, if you took those half of people who might have gone into ML. You'd instead, like, move them all into, like, really thinking deeply about the long term and how to make things go well. That sounds like an even better world still. It seems to me pretty good if you, like, really trusted someone to, like, if someone really cared about the long term and you're like, what should I do? It's a reasonably good option to just be like, go do this thing, which is good on the short term and adjacent to an area we think is going to be really important over the long term. There's been this argument uh, over the years that it would just be good in some way that we can't yet anticipate to have people at the cutting edge of machine learning research uh, who... Uh, concerned about the long term and uh, like alert to, to to safety issues and alert to like alignment issues that, that could play out over, over or that could have like effects on on the very long term, and people have kind of got, got gone back and forth on, on how useful that actually would be to just to be in the, to be in the room where, where decisions are getting made. It just kind of occurred to me that it seems like the machine learning community is really moving in the direction of kind of sharing like the views that, that you and I hold or like a lot of people are, are just becoming concerned about yeah will AI be, be aligned in the long term and it might be that if, if you're particularly concerned about that now then maybe that makes you like different from your peers right now but in 10 years time or 20 years time kind of everyone will have will have converged on a, on a similar vision as as we have a better idea of uh, yeah what machine learning actually looks like and, and what the risks are when it when it's deployed yeah I think that's an interesting question or like an interesting possible concern with that kind of approach I guess my take would be that there are some like I don't know if you would call them values differences or like deep empirical or like worldview differences that are relevant here where like 
I think to the extent that we're currently thinking about problems that are going to become real problems, it's going to be like much, much more obvious there's real, there are real problems. And I think that like to the extent that some of the problems we think about over the very long term sort of are already obviously problems. People in the ML community are very interested in problems that are obviously problems um, or like problems that are affecting the behavior of systems today. Like, again, if these problems are real, that's going to become more and more the case over time. And so people become more and more interested in those problems. I still think they're likely to be like there is this question of how much are you interested in making the long term go well versus how much are you like doing your job or like pursuing something which like reason has a positive impact over the short term or that you're like passionate about or interested in this like other kind of non long term impact of. I do think there's just like sort of continuously going to be some calls to be made or like some different decisions or the field embodies some set of values. I think that like people's empirical views are changing more than like the set of kind of implicit values that they have. I think if you just said like everyone who really cares about the long term isn't going into this area, then like the overall orientation of the field will persistently be different. Uh, do you have any views on the particular kind of technical approaches that, that Pushmeet mentioned in the, in the episode or that um, the DeepMind folks have, have written up on their safety blog? The stuff I'm most familiar with from Pushmeet's group is like sort of working on verification for robustness to perturbations, some working on verification more broadly, and some working on adversarial training and testing. Maybe those are like the three things. I don't know if there's something else. I'm happy to go through those in order. Yeah, um, yeah, go, go through this. Yeah, so I guess I'm generally pretty psyched about adversarial testing and training and verification. That is, I think there is this really important problem over both. This is one of those things at the intersection of like it matters over the short term. But I think maybe it matters even more over the very long term of like you have some system, you have some AI system, you want to delegate a bunch of work to maybe not just one, but a whole bunch of AI systems. If they failed catastrophically, it would be really unrecoverably bad. You can't really rule out that case with traditional ML training because you're just going to try a thing on a bunch of cases that you've generated so far, experienced so far. So you're really not going to be getting, your training process isn't at all constraining like this potential catastrophic failure in a new situation that comes up. So we just want to have something, we want to like change the ML training process to respect, like to have some information about what would constitute a catastrophic failure and then like not do that. Um, so I think that's like a problem that, yeah, in common between the short and long term, uh, I think it matters a lot on the long term. It's a little bit hard to say that it's more in the long term or short term. But I like, care about a lot in the long term. I think that like the main approaches we have to that are this like the three I normally think about are adversarial training and testing, verification, and like sort of interpretability or transparency. I just think people getting familiar with those techniques, like becoming good at them, thinking about like how you would apply them to like richer kinds of specifications, how you grapple with like the fundamental, like there's sort of fundamental limitations in adversarial training where you're like, you have to rely on the adversary to think of a kind of case. The way the technique works in general is you're like, I'm concerned about my system failing in the future. I'm going to have an adversary who's going to like generate some possible situations under which the system might fail. And then we're going to run on those and see if it fails catastrophically. You sort of have this fundamental limitation where your adversary isn't going to think of everything. It's like people just like getting experience with like, how do we grapple with that limitation? In some sense, verification is like a response to that limitation. And maybe like the space between or like when you're, I think it's productive to have people thinking about both of like verification and the limits of verification and testing and the limits of testing. So overall, I'm like pretty excited about about all of that. Do you share uh, Pushmeet's general optimism? I don't know quantitatively exactly how optimistic he is. My guess would be that I'm less optimistic um, in the sense that I'm like, well, there's like tens of percent chance that we'll mess this up and like lose the majority of the value of the future. Whereas that's not listening to him. It's like not the overall sense I get of where he's at. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's a little bit hard to know how to translate between a vibe and like an actual level of optimism. Yeah, it is, it is interesting. Yeah, someone can think there's a 20% chance that we'll totally destroy everything. But uh, still, just they're kind of a cheerful disposition. So yeah. <laughs> they come across as, well, things go well as well. 
Uh, among people working on existential risks and global catastrophic risks, and, and I guess AI in particular, um, there's kind of this trade-off between uh, not wanting to, to do things that other people uh, disagree with or are unenthusiastic about, uh, and at the same time not wanting to have a field that's like so conservative that, that there are no experiments done unless kind of there's a consensus behind them. Do you think people are too inclined to kind of make unilateralist cursor types of mistakes or, or uh, like not, not trying things enough? I think my answer to this probably varies depending on the area. For reference, I think the sort of policy you want to be following is kind of the update on the fact that no one else wanted to do this thing and then take that like take that really seriously, engage with it a lot before deciding whether you want to do it. And that, ideally, that's going to involve engaging with the people who have made that decision to understand where they're coming from. I think I don't have like a very strong general sense of whether we're more likely to make one kind of mistake or the other. Um, I think I sort of expect the world systematically to make too much of the sort of a thing can be done unilaterally so it gets done. In the context of like this field, I don't know if there are as many. Yeah, I guess I don't feel that. I don't feel super concerned about either failure mode, maybe. Like I don't feel that bad about where people are at. Yeah, the vibe I get in general from the AI policy and strategy people is that they are pretty cautious, uh, pretty cautious about what they say and what they do. I guess that, that, that's been a de- deliberate decision, but uh, it, I, I do sometimes wonder whether they've swung too far in favor of yeah, uh, not, not speaking out enough about their, about their views. Yeah, I guess there's there certainly people who have taken, and there's a diversity of what people do, which I guess is the whole problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess there are definitely people who take a very cautious perspective. And I think like, that they sometimes get a bit cut out of the public discussion because they're just not inclined to speak out, which, yeah. which can be a loss at times. Yeah, I definitely think it seems like you have a real problem. You think possibly part of your channel for impact is communicating about your views, but then are like very hung up on the or like take a strong like shouldn't communicate views because of unilateral concerns. Yeah, so I guess in general, on the the like family of like unilateral concerns, I'm least sympathetic to is probably one intervention is talk seriously about like what kinds of mechanisms might be in place and like how we might respond if it turned out the alignment was hard or if AI progress was rapid. That's probably the place I'm like least overall sympathetic but like i think that the cost benefit like looks pretty good on those kinds of that kind of discussion kind of saying you, you default towards just on on most issues just even if you're not taking action kind of express your true views uh or at least like to the extent there's like useful collaborative cognitive work of like flushing thinking about what should be done or like how would we respond or what would happen like being willing to engage in that work as a community rather than like people thinking in in private and like maybe taking some care to be like, well, you don't want to like say inflammatory stuff. You don't want to get people really upset. Like you can be reasonable about it. Yeah, I guess it, again, it's not really like my view is so much I don't care one way or the other. It's more like I'm kind of ambivalent and don't think it's obvious that there's a big error one way or the other. All right, let's talk about something uh, pretty different, uh, which is uh, you, you recently uh, wrote a post about why divesting from companies that, that do harmful things could um, in, in moderation actually be like quite an effective way to, to improve the world. And that's that's kind of kind of in contrast to what most people um, who've looked into that as part of kind of uh, under under the rubric of effective altruism have tended to conclude, which is that it's actually not that useful because if you kind of sell a share in a company or like don't lend money to a company, then someone else will just will just take your place, and you haven't really uh, haven't really made any difference. Yeah, do you, do you want to explain the mechanism by which yeah divesting from you know, harmful companies, I guess like cigarette companies, for example, could be useful? Yeah, I think there's two important things to say up front. So one is that. I was mostly, I'm mostly thinking about the ratio of costs to benefits. So you can end up for some companies in a regime where like divestment has relatively little effect, but is also like quite cheap. So in general, I think like the first epsilon of divestment will tend to be literally like free, like the cost is second order in terms of how far you divest and the benefits are first order. So that it's almost always going to be worth it to divest at least by that epsilon. 
that's like the first part of the picture that like this can be mostly a story about the costs being very, very low rather than benefits being large. And if the costs are very, very low, then it's mostly an issue of like having to do the analysis and having to deal with the logistics, in which case I think it is plausible that one should, you could imagine really getting those costs down if someone both did the research and like actually produced a fund. Like I could imagine me personally being like, sure, I will put like, you know, 0.1% of my wealth in some fund. That's just like this roughly market neutral thing that shorts all the companies I really don't sort of like the activities of and is long sort of those most correlated companies. So that's one thing that like it may just be about the costs and benefits both being small such that like it's not going to be a big deal for any individual investor is maybe not worth thinking that much about it. But like if someone was willing to like produce a product that could be like scaled a lot and everyone could just very quickly or very easily buy the fund, then they might do that. Uh, Maybe the second thing like in terms of how it could actually be possible or why it isn't literally completely offset. I think the rough mechanism is when I get out of a company, like let's suppose I like care about oil and I like divest from companies that are like producing oil that increases as I divest more. The whole way that does good is by increasing the expected returns to investment in oil companies. And so the concern is other investors will just buy, continue putting more money into oil companies until the expected returns have fallen to market returns, because otherwise, like, why not just keep putting more money in? Um, And the thing that simplified picture misses is that there's idiosyncratic risk in the oil industry, namely, like, as oil becomes a larger and larger part of my portfolio, more and more of the volatility of my portfolio is driven not by like what is overall going on in the market, which is the composite of many sectors, but just volatility in oil in particular. And so as I, if I try and go overweight like 10% oil, like if there was a lot of investment and I had to, people had to go overweight 10% to offset it, they would actually be significantly increasing the riskiness of marginal oil investments. And so the returns that they would demand in order to offset that risk would also go up. And so, I mean, I think there's sort of two things. One is like, and it actually does require doing a kind of, well, it depends a little bit on how rationally you believe investors are. I think in some sense, the divestment story, like the pessimism already relied on rational investors. So I think it's maybe more reasonable to say, let's actually dig in and see how rational investors would respond and do those calculations. So that's like, yeah, maybe that's my perspective. I think it's unusually reasonable to, to look into that when pessimism is coming from this like homo economicus model. I think once you're doing that, then there are two questions. One is like just quantitatively, how large are the effects that we're talking about? And that's something I tried to run through in this blog post. And like a thing that I was kind of surprised how large they were when I thought about it a little bit. And maybe the second observation is that actually there's this cancellation that occurs where like, roughly speaking, if the oil industry has no idiosyncratic risk or has very low idiosyncratic risk, your divestment will get almost entirely offset. But at the same time, it has almost no cost to you because the industry had almost no excess returns because those returns should be tied to the idiosyncratic risk. So you end up with actually the cost effectiveness doesn't depend. There's this parameter which governs like how much your divestment is going to get offset. But cost effectiveness doesn't actually depend or like the ratio between costs and benefits doesn't depend on that parameter because it affects both costs and benefits equally. So it affects like what is the overall upside to like organizing this fund, like how much will it get offset, but it doesn't affect like how attractive is it for an individual investor. Such that I think like, yeah, so we could go into we definitely get into details to talk about like how much it makes sense to divest. I think it might often make sense to divest completely or maybe even like go like 100 or 200% short in industries you don't like. It's going to become better. Like an example of divestment that might be particularly cost effective is like suppose there's two companies who are producing very similar products and so very, very correlated, like maybe two companies that both produce like poultry and one of them has substantially worse animal welfare practices. Like you might think there's a lot of a lot of the risk in animal agriculture in general is going to be experienced equally by those two companies. So if you have like a long, if you're long the company you like and short the company you dislike, that has relatively little risk. I mean, it still has idiosyncratic risk specific to those companies. And like, there's a complicated analysis there. But like, 
you can end up with relatively little risk compared to how much effect you have on capital availability for the two companies. I guess we didn't actually talk about the mechanism by which this causes less bad stuff to happen in the world here. We're really just talking about why I'm skeptical of the skepticism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's, let's set that aside for, for a minute. So, so just to explain this in, in um, uh, really simple language. So, so the previous thinking has been that if you sell shares in a company, then someone else who just doesn't care about the moral issues to do with yet yeah, raising chickens or producing oil, they're just going to swoop in and buy it at the same price and the share price won't be changed or the amount of money that the company can borrow won't, won't really be changed. But the thing that that misses is that if a decent number of people or even like a small number of people like stop buying oil or oil stocks, then say like rich investment funds that don't care about the moral issues uh, for them to go and like buy even more of these of these fossil fuel companies that they don't want to do that or, they, or their willingness to do that isn't unlimited because they want to be diversified across like all of the different assets in the world. And in order to like buy extra oil shares to make up for the fact that you and I don't want to own them, uh, they have to like reduce the diversification that they have, which is unappealing to them. So if a bunch of people or even just uh, we like short or, or sell these shares, it actually probably will suppress their price a little bit because people will have to be compensated for the reduced diversification with like a lower share price to make it more uh, more appealing to buy. Okay, that's one thing. Also, while that, that effect might be like pretty small uh, in the scheme of things, it's also the case that just like selling those first few shares of those oil companies, it wasn't that important to you to own those specific companies uh, anyway. Uh, it's just like, you can like slightly reduce your diversification, like yeah, just just sell tiny amounts of these companies that you like owned in your portfolio. Costs you practically nothing. So even though the benefit is quite small, the cost could potentially be even smaller because it's like just doesn't matter that much. Uh, and so then the ratio of benefits to costs could be pretty large, even if like this is not you know <laughs> the best way to have an impact in the world. Yeah, that's right. I think if you want to think about like what the total impact is like, it's maybe reasonable to imagine like scaling this up to like large numbers of investors doing it. Like a lot of the effects are like going to be roughly linear in the relevant range. I think like the total impacts are like not that bad. Like they don't look great, um, but they look like, you know, if you imagine like a change where everyone, like large fractions of people divested, I think it would meaningfully decrease the amount of like oil that gets extracted or the number of chickens raised in captivity, especially in cases where you have like, so I think maybe the oil case is a little bit unfavorable in this way compared to like the chicken case, where you could really imagine like slightly shifting towards like more like practices that are better for animal welfare. That's, yeah, you could imagine slightly shifting towards practices better for animal welfare or towards like different kinds of meat or so on. But yeah, the total effect, probably not that big. Um, the total effect may still be large enough to like justify like really getting the logistics sorted out so that it's very easy to do. Because from the investor's perspective, like other than the hassle of doing it, I think it's like actually a pretty, definitely the first unit is like a very, very good deal. Well, couldn't you just buy into an investment fund that doesn't own oil companies or doesn't own yet animal agriculture companies? Uh, that seems like at the first pass, that's like pretty straightforward to do. Yeah, I mean, it involves some thinking then. So like when I buy a fund, there's like a bunch of things that constrain my choices. And it's like kind of annoying if now I have this extra constraint on top of those. And so that might be like a reason, like, and it's, it's not quite worth it. Yeah, I mean, even if you like slightly raise management fees on that fund, right? It's like Vanguard's going to offer me like some teensy. 0.04, yeah. Yeah, and like now I have to pay like 0.1% on this new <laughs> thing. Like that's no good. Yeah. So like I would normally imagine my baseline implementation would be a fund that shorts the relevant, like the particular companies you care about. And maybe like also opens up the like offsetting rate. So they, you know, the reason it was bad to sell these companies was because we were losing diversification. And so they can like try and do things to offset those costs as part of the same bundle. Like I'd be very interested in just seeing like there is the like optimal divestment fund for like people who care about animal welfare or whatever that just holds like mostly these really large short positions in the companies that have the worst animal welfare effects. And then like also constructs a portfolio to like as much as possible capture the diversification benefits that those would have added to your portfolio. The cost of investing in that can be pretty low. And you can just then put that on top of do whatever else you would have done in investing, then take like 0.1% of your money or whatever, 1% of your money and put it in this fund. 
And like on average, that fund is going to like make zero dollars and it's going to have some risks. That's the, the cost to you is just like the risk of this fund that on average is making no money. But like it could be relatively, I mean, if, it's, if you're not investing that much of your money in it, the risk is just not that bad. To what extent, uh, if at all, is this analogous to it being useful to not go and work at, at an evil company? Yeah, I think it is fairly analogous. Like there's, there's a bunch of quantitative parameters. Like if you take a certain economics perspective, they're like very, very structurally analogous. The risk, this discussion we're having about risk, which is like important to determining some of the relevant elasticities is like quite different from the analogous discussion in the case of working in a, in a problematic industry. But I think the like overall thing is like kind of similar where like if you don't work in that industry, like overall what happens is like prices go up or like wages go up a little bit in the industry and like it induces more people to enter. But, like we just have to talk about how much do wages go up. One thing I sort of think about is like if we consider say animal agriculture, it's also kind of analogous to the discussion with like ethical consumption. I think that's actually a really good comparison point for divestment. Where like you could say I want to consume less fewer animal products in order to decrease the number of animals we get produced, and there you have like a very similar discussion about like what are the relative elasticities like, and the way one way you could think about it is like if you decrease demand by one percent, you decrease labor force by one percent, and you decrease availability of capital by one percent. Like if you did all of those things, then you would kind of decrease the total amount produced by one percent roughly under some assumptions about like where natu- how natural resources work and so on. And so kind of like the credit for that 1% decrease is somehow divided up across the various factors, like on the supply side and demand side, and the elasticities determine how it's divided up. But I think it is like, it's not like 100% consumption or like, you know, 100% the labor. I think all of those factors are like participating to a non-trivial extent. I think oh yeah, in the comparison to like ethical consumption, I think like, I think it actually like looks reasonably good. I think under like pretty plausible assumptions, you're getting more bang from your buck from like divesting from. I, I would like I haven't done this analysis really carefully, and I think it would be like a really interesting thing to do, and like would be a good motivation if one wanted to put together like the animal welfare divestment fund. But I think under like pretty plausible assumptions, you're getting like a lot more bang for your buck from the divestment than from the consumption choices. Probably you'd still want like you know the consumption the investment thing will be relatively small compared to your total consumption pattern so like it wouldn't be like replacing your ethical consumption choices but like if ethical consumption was a good idea then also like at least totally divesting and maybe even like 10x leveraged short positions like when you would have bought one dollar of like animal agriculture companies instead you like sell ten dollars like i think stuff like that could be justified if you thought that ethical consumption was a good idea yeah. uh, do you just want to uh, map out uh, or sketch out briefly for those who are skeptical how it is that selling uh, shares in a company or selling bonds in a company like reduces the the output of that company yeah so roughly i mean i think the bond case is a little bit simpler to think about though i, I probably think they're probably about the same so let's talk about the bond case so this is like the company i don't know tyson wants to like raise a dollar they like go out to investors and say, give us a dollar now and we'll give you like, you know, some amount of money 10 years from now, assuming we're still solvent. So that's their pitch. Like they're selling these pieces of paper to people, which are like IOUs. The price of those IOUs are like how much the IOUs have to be for is just set by supply and demand amongst investors. So sort of what happens when you short the bond is someone came to Tyson or like whatever, someone came to this company and wanted to like loan them a dollar. And you're saying, don't loan them a dollar. Instead, loan me a dollar. And whatever it is that they pay back to their bondholders, I'll pay it back to you instead. And they're like, fine. I'm like just as happy to lend to you as I was to lend to the actual company. Now the company has one less dollar. Now the company's like, okay, we still need to raise that dollar if we want to like produce this additional marginal chicken. So now the company like goes and tries to raise the dollar, but they've like used up one of the willing buyers. So now they like need to find another buyer, like someone who's willing to loan them this dollar. And like that person is going to be a little bit less excited, like because again, they're sort of moving their portfolio is a little bit more overweight in this company. And so they're like a little bit more scared about the risk of this company going under. So roughly speaking, that's the mechanism. Yeah. I think I think it makes sense. You imagine, yeah, what if 
just a lot of people weren't willing to lend money to a company or a significant number. And then this drives up their, their borrowing cost. And so the company shrinks because yeah, they have to pay higher interest rates. They can't get as much capital. Yeah, yeah. it kind of makes sense on an, on an intuitive level. So some of this gets a little bit technical. Uh, so, so we'll stick up a, a link to the, to the blog post that you wrote with, with all, the, all the equations and uh, ex- explaining uh, how, how you work this through and try to try to estimate the size of the, of the benefits and the costs. Yeah, I'm concerned it's not the most careful or good, like clear analysis to people. I think I'm like interested in and think at some point we'll like, have a more careful version that we put up. Just sort of a fun exercise for me. Yeah, well, I mean, well, you make some points that I haven't seen anywhere else, and that actually might shift the conclusion. So that, that seems like probably the, the the most important thing that, that people need to take on board. Yeah, it would be super interesting to me if like you actually ended up with like the divestment fund that was reasonably sort of the long short fund that was like reasonably constructed and cost effective. That would be kind of cool. Also, sorry, I said that like it compared favorably to ethical consumption. I think one thing I want to stress there, like, is that. The way that work is getting done is just because of this like changes on the margin being very effective. So it's very similar to like for vegetarianism being like the first, if you just like stop eating meat in cases where it was really marginal, that has like a lot more bang for your buck than if you like go all the way. I think that's the same thing here where it's like not going to be competitive with like the first unit of stopping eating meat. It's going to be competitive with like going all the way to like the last bits. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit embarrassing if, uh, yeah, effective altruist uh, aligned folks have been saying divestment is kind of a waste of time for all these years. And it turns out that we're uh, pretty wrong about that. <laughs> going to have to, yeah, eat, eat, eat humble pie. But I suppose it uh, also looks good that we're like uh, updating our views. So we're not just, not just stuck with dogmatic positions. Yeah. I think we'd also most likely end up with some kind of compromise where you're like, look, the impacts are like a lot smaller than people were often like implicitly assuming when they were pitching this. But also like it is on balance, like a reasonable thing to do. And maybe we shouldn't have been quite so down on it. Yeah. And, and the costs are kind of negligible a lot of the time. Yeah. Or it is like really a social thing of like the cost is just people believing the only difficulty to make it happen is like people believing they should do it. And therefore it's like kind of a reasonable if there's like a change people can make that costs them almost nothing. It's like a particularly reasonable thing to like advocate for people to do. Let's talk about S-Risks uh, for, for a minute. So some listeners will know, but some people won't, um, that kind of S-Risks is this term uh, people have settled on to describe possible like future scenarios that, that aren't just kind of neutral where like humans go extinct and then there's nothing or like not, not very good where like humans stick around, but then we just don't make the world as, as good as it could be. Uh, but rather like worlds where there's astronomical levels of, levels of bad things. Uh, I guess S in this case stands for suffering because like a lot of people tend to be concerned that, that the future might contain a lot of suffering. Uh, but it could also just include like any like any future that is like large in the sense that a lot of stuff is going on, uh, but it like also contains a lot of uh, bad stuff in it rather than good stuff. Some of the some of the ways uh, that people worry this could happen kind of involve an artificial intelligence that that, that doesn't share our goals. What, what's your kind of overall take on S-Risk as a, as a problem to work on? Yeah, so I think my best guess is that if you like go out into the universe and optimize it for things being good, like the total level of goodness delivered is like commensurate with the total amount of badness that would be delivered if you went out into the universe and optimized it for things being bad. I think that like to the extent one has that empirical view, or like that maybe moral, some combination of empirical view and moral view about like the nature of what is good and what is bad, then like S-Risks are not particularly concerning because like people are so much more likely to be optimizing the universe for good like so much more an expectation of the stuff in the universe is like optimized for exactly what paul wants rather than exactly what paul doesn't want so that's like my best guess view and so on my best guess view i think this is like not a big concern i think i do have like considerable moral uncertainty and like sort of i guess the way i would approach moral uncertainty in general would say that like even if an expectation, it's sort of hard to talk about even comparing the expectations of outcomes across these very different moral views. And this is one of the cases that gets it like, like the kind of comparison that's difficult because of those weird, like difficulties under theoretic, like utility comparisons. The way I would normally think about this kind of case is to say, I should put like reasonable priority or like reasonable interest in reducing S risks. If I put like a reasonable probability on views on which like the total amount of possible badness is much, much larger than the total amount of possible goodness which is kind of where I'm at. Like, I think it's like not likely, but sort of plausible combinations of empirical and moral views on which they're like very important. 
yes, that's my starting point of like taking this as a thing, which like I'm not going to put much because I like don't find that perspective like a particularly appealing one. It's not going to be like a large fraction of my total concern, but it deserves some concern because it is a plausible perspective. So, so the naive take on this might be, why would we worry about these scenarios? Because they seem really outlandish. Because why would anyone set out to like fill the universe with like things that are really bad? Uh, that just seems like a very odd thing to do. Like once you're at the level of sophistication where, yeah, you can like go out and colonize space and like create astronomical amounts of stuff. Why are you filling it with stuff that's bad? And then there's like something to be said for that. But then people try to think about like scenarios in which which this might might happen, which like might involve conflicts between different groups where like kind of one of them threatens the other that they're going to like do something bad. And so they, and then they like follow through on doing that or potentially where like we don't realize that we're creating something that's bad. So yeah, you might cr- create something that is like has a lot of good in it, but also has a bunch of bad in it as well. And you go out and like spread that and like we just don't realize that we're also like as a side effect creating a bunch of a bunch of like suffering or, or some other disvalue. Um, yeah. How, like how plausible do you think any of these scenarios are? Yeah, I guess the one that seems by far most plausible to me is this like conflict threats and then following through on threats model. Not just like moral error potentially? Um, I think it's hard to make a sufficiently extreme moral error. And there might be moral error that's like a combines with the like threats that get followed through on. But I think it's like hard for me to get sort of like the the risk from that is larger than the risk for me getting like what is good like very nearly exactly backwards. Yeah. That's not like it's not totally impossible to get things exactly backwards like it's more likely than hitting some random point in the space for a wide variety of reasons. But like, I think it's still a minority of my total concern. Most of it comes from this, like someone wanting to destroy shit because they wanted to have the threat of destroying shit or like destroying us, destroy value because they wanted to throw destroying value. That's what I would mostly be worried about. And yeah, how, how plausible is it? I guess it seems like you think it's like conceivable, but pretty unlikely. So it's like, you'll pay a little bit of attention to it, but it's not going to be a big focus. Is that kind of the bottom line? Uh, yeah, so when I was talking before about this, like comparisons, like how being conceivable means it gets a little bit of priority. That was more like with respect to sort of moral views or like aggregation across different values and how much weight I give them. Where like I think the key question is how much credence do you place on views where like the worst outcomes are much much more bad than the best outcomes are good. And then I think that like those views sort of basically are going to recommend if the ratio is large enough, just focusing entirely on minimizing this risk of really really bad stuff. And so I think, like, sort of regardless of one's empirical view, it's worth, like, devoting some amount of attention to, like, reducing the risk of really, really bad stuff. Yeah, in terms of how plausible it is, that's, like, still an important, like, important to understand the basic shape of what's up. I think that, like, I don't really have a considered view on this. I think the answer is, like, it's relatively unlikely to have significant amounts of disvalue created in this way, but, like, not unlikely, like, the one in a million level, unlikely more like the 1% level. And there's a question of like when they're bad, like what fraction of the badness is realized compared to like the worst possible outcome and like how much of the universe's resources go into that. And like I'm also that that estimate is not very stable. That's kind of where I'm at. So you kind of kind of made this argument at the start that it seems like naively you would think that it's like as easy to create good things as to create something that's equivalently bad. And so more future beings are going to want to create good things and bad things. Uh, so it's like we should expect the, the, the future to be positive. How confident are you that it actually is true that it's like it's kind of symmetric, uh, um, symmetrically easy to create good and, good and bad things? Yeah. So when we say symmetrically easy to create good and bad things, I think it's worth distinguishing, like being clear about what exactly that means. Um, I think the relevant thing here, assuming that we're like sort of linear, like things twice as big or twice as good or bad, then the relevant question is just like, what is your trade-off? Suppose you have like a P probability of the best thing you can do and a one minus P probability of the worst thing you can do. What does P have to be such that you're indifferent between that and like the barren universe? And I'm saying like, I think most of my probability is like distributed between like, you would need somewhere between uh, like 50% and like 99% chance of good things. Mm-hmm. 
and then I like put some probability, or, like some credence on views where that number is like, you know, a quadrillion times larger or something, in which case it's definitely going to dominate. A quadrillion is probably too big a number, but like very big numbers. Numbers like easily large enough to swamp the actual improbabilities involved. A quadrillion is just way too big. Yeah. I should have done with a bajillion, which is my first. <laughs> anyway, in terms of like how confident I am on the like 50% or on the 50 to 99%, like I think I'm like maybe would put a half probability or like weight or like a half to a third on the exactly 50 or like things very close to 50%. And then most of the rest gets split between like the somewhat, somewhat more than 50% rather than like radically more than 50%. Yeah, I think that those arguments are a little bit complicated, like how to get at this. Right. So I think to, to clarify the basic position, like the reason that you end up concluding it's worse is just like consider your intuition about like how bad the worst thing that can happen to a person is versus the best thing. You're like, damn, the worst thing seems pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the like first pass response is like, well, we sort of have this debunking understanding or like we sort of understand in like causally how it is that we ended up with this kind of preference with respect to like really bad stuff versus really good stuff. If you like look at like what happens in like over evolutionary history. Like, like, what is sort of the range of things that can happen to an organism? And, like, how should an organism be trading off, like, best possible versus worst possible outcomes? And then you sort of end up in a, like, well, to what extent is that, like, a debunking explanation that explains why human preference, like, humans in terms of their capacity to experience joy and suffering are, like, sort of unbiased, but, like, the reality is still biased? Versus to what extent does this then, like, get fundamentally reflected in our preferences about good and bad things? And I think it's just, like, a really hard set of questions. I could easily imagine my view shifting on them with much more deliberation. Yeah. How do you think technical AI research or, or your focus uh, w- would change if yeah, preventing S-risks became a, became a high priority? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is this, like understanding better the kind of dynamics that could plausibly lead to bad threats being carried through on and understanding like, how we can arrange things so it's less likely for that to happen. I think that's like the natural top priority. Yeah, I heard an interesting suggestion for, for how to do that recently, uh, which was, yeah, a concern you might have is that someone would threaten to create the thing that uh, you uh, think is, is really just valuable. So let's say I'm, I'm concerned about suffering. I don't want suffering to exist in the future. That leaves me open to someone threatening to create like uh, suffering in order to like get me to, to concede on, on some other point. But I could potentially avoid that risk by, say, changing myself so that I also disvalued something that was actually uh, like kind of not important at all. So let's say I want to I also really don't like there being. Yeah, I don't want there to be like flying horses or something like that, something that doesn't exist. And so in, in that case, if someone wanted to extort me uh, there or like wanted to threaten me, then they can instead rather than threaten to create suffering, they can they would instead have the option of threatening uh, to create flying horses, which like currently don't exist, but, but they could threaten to, to, to create them. And potentially I could like change my like values such that it's like more efficient to create that than it would be to create suffering. And so that would be the, the most efficient threat, I think, to threaten me with. And it's kind of this like spillover, like part of your utility function that like protects you from threats about the things that you like previously cared about. Yeah. Do, do, do you have any have any reaction to, to that idea or yeah, things in that vein? Yeah, I think my initial take was that it like seemed kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> okay. And then since then, I'm like have become significantly more enthusiastic about it or like it seems sort of plausible. I think actually one of the, like I was giving out a prize last year for like things that seemed relevant to AI alignment or to like AI leading to a good outcome. I think one of them, like Casper from AF got for some version of this proposal. He wrote, he submitted some proposal on these lines and I like at that point thought about it more and was like somewhat compelled. And I think since then he's been continuing to think about that and it seems like interesting. I think like a perspective on that that I find like somewhat more plausible than the like don't care about a thing is like you could say I care a lot about this random thing, like wh- how many flying horses there are. And you could also take this perspective that's like kind of like a bug bounty. Like if you were to demonstrate to me convincingly that like you could have run this strategy that would have had a significant chance of causing extreme disvalue and would have like coerced me into doing X or would have like in fact caused me to do X. You can just like demonstrate that sufficiently convincingly and then like really 
once you've like persuaded me of that, I'm like, okay, fine. You can have like whatever outcome you would have in fact achieved, like an outcome which is from your perspective, like incrementally better than whatever outcome you would have achieved by carrying through this risky policy. Yeah, it's not clear. Like, I think it's incredibly complicated. Like, I've started to spend a little bit of time thinking about this, and it's just like incredibly complicated to figure out if it's a good idea. Um, or not if it's a good idea, but like whether it sort of really works. And yeah, I think it's like a thing I'd be sort of interested in people thinking more about. It's like definitely one of the things I'd be doing on the like understand the conditions under which under which like bad threats get followed through on. I think it like makes less difference than other like more commonsensical interventions, like avoiding the situation where there are people threatening each other. <laughs> but like it is a lot easier to make get intellectual traction on or like there's more obvious open questions there. One reason that people work on S-risks is that they're like more uh, worried about preventing bad things than they are about creating good things. Uh, but another rationale might be, you know, even if you're, if you know, even if you're, you're symmetric on that point, I uh, would be that there's like more people working on like trying to prevent extinction or trying to make the, the future go well than there are people worrying about like the worst case scenarios and, and trying to, to prevent them. So it's like potentially uh, right now a more neglected uh, problem uh, that, that deserves like more, more attention than it's getting. Uh, do, do, do you put uh, much of any weight on that? I mean, I think ultimately I mostly care about neglectedness because of how it translates to tractability. I don't think this problem is currently more tractable than, I don't feel like it's more tractable than AI alignment. Maybe they seem like they're in kind of the same ballpark in terms of tractability, but I don't think, like in part because it's like a harder problem to deal with. It's also like has these concerns where it's not, yeah. There are a bunch of reasons it's like maybe less tractable on its face than alignment. Why is that? I think the basic source of a lot of difficulty is that like, I mean, part of the source is that, like the threat model for alignment is incredibly clear. And like you have this nice model in which you can work. You understand like what might go wrong. I mean, it's absurd to be comparing alignment to a problem and be like, it's incredibly clear and concrete. <laughs> that like basically never happens. Yeah. Anyway, but in this one comparison, we can be like, it's unusually much more clear and concrete. Mm-hmm. Whereas here we're like, geez, it's quite a fuzzy kind of difficulty. And like the things that we're going to do are all much more like bank shots. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a hard, it's kind of a messy subject. <laughs> Quite a lot of people think that, uh, yeah, these like risks of bad outcomes and, and threats are, are more likely in kind of a multipolar scenario where you have kind of a lot of groups that are competing over having influence over the future and I guess over like potentially the use of artificial intelligence or whatever other technologies end up mattering. Yeah, do, 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 do you share that intuition? Yeah, I think it's at least somewhat worse. I don't know how much worse, like maybe twice as bad seems like a plausible first pass guess. Where sort of the thing is turning a lot on how sensitive, like, if people are threatening each other in the world, that seems bad. That's, like, one major source of threats. And so, like, if you have fewer, like, if you have less rapid competition amongst people, you expect to have less of that going down. Some questions are both how sensitive are the number of threats people are making against each other to, like, multiple polarity. It seems, like, pretty sensitive. And then what fraction of all threats occur, like, you know, say, over the next 100 years and that kind of dynamic. Do you have any thoughts on um, coordination between people who are like mostly focused on making the, the future contain good things and people who are mostly focused on making sure that it doesn't have bad things? I mean, I mostly think the reason they're going to end up coordinating is via like they sort of are pursuing similar approaches, like cognitive styles for thinking about the situation and like people should be coordinating. Like generically, it's nice if like people can coordinate even if their goals are sort of on the object level. Like even if you're totally total orthogonal goals, it'd be good if you like share resources and talk and like benefit from the existence of each other and so on. And like we do have somewhat like people normally don't have extreme values at one end or the other. So I think that's like the main channel for coordination. You could also hope for some kind of or cooperation just through like overlapping objectives that happen to serve both. I think that's like a less important channel here than the like sort of both communities can be like happier and healthier and get along better if we like are all like look we all care like to some extent about these different things and we like therefore should all help each other out let's let's talk a second about like philosophy and ethics and and ai 
What role do you think kind of different theories of, of meta ethics play in uh, AI alignment and uh, potentially like AI alignment research? I think there are two qualitatively different ways that philosophical progress could affect AI alignment. So one is on the object level, thinking that like the work we need to do when aligning in AI involves clarifying some philosophical questions. A different one is like the way that you approach alignment depending on your views and some of those philosophical questions. I think it's worth distinguishing those. So on the object level, if you thought that you had to like understand what is good so that you could communicate or understand some process which would ultimately converge to like a correct understanding of the good and that you had to like directly impart that into an AI system you built, then you'd be in like a really rough position where you like sort of either have to solve a bunch of philosophy or solve like what way Dai calls metaphilosophy, like understanding by what process humans arrive at like the truth when doing philosophical inquiry. That seems pretty rough. And then there'd be like this really tight object level connection where you might even end up saying like these are basically the same problem. I think like that's a perspective maybe that's like closer to where I was six years ago. And I've like really shifted a lot towards like, look, you just want to have a system that is like the thing you want to be clarifying is this notion of control and course correction. You want to say like, we want the construction of AI to not make anything worse. We want to end up in a position like the one we're currently in where we get to continue going through the same kind of process of deliberation and like understanding ways in which that process goes well or poorly and correcting them. And like avoid, like we want to be making essentially as few ethical commitments as we can at the point where we're constructing AI. And I've become like much, much more pessimistic about any approach that essentially involves like any hard philosophical commitments. And like, I think we still end up making some and I'm happy to talk about like the ones that we like look most likely to make, but I don't think, I think if things go okay, it's probably because we can dodge most of them. Yeah. Why have you become more pessimistic? I think in part it's from sort of technical details of the case. I'm just thinking about how different approaches to alignment might play out. And by that, I mean something like, I sort of think you have to be leaning on this mechanism of course correction by humans or like deferring to this process of human deliberation a lot anyway to have any hope apart from philosophical issues. And once you're leaning on it in general, you sort of might as well also just lean on it for answering these questions. In part, is just becoming a lot more optimistic about the prospects for that. So it's like you might ask, how important is it that you understand like what you want to happen with the universe as a whole when it goes out and acts on your behalf? And I've like updated a lot towards like it's okay if it doesn't really understand, even in like really pessimistic cases where stuff is getting crazy, like over you know there's going to be like six minutes between when you like start your AI and when the colonization of the universe begins. I think even then it's like basically okay if it doesn't understand what you want for the universe that much, just understands like look here's me. It's like, great, put you in a box somewhere. Now, like, start colonizing the universe and then eventually, like, make some space for your box to, like, sort out, like, what humanity should do, like, your little civilization on a planet somewhere out in the backwoods, like, trying to figure out what is good. And then ultimately, like, the process just has to remain responsive to the conclusions of, like, that deliberation. That it's like the things it has to understand are, like, what does it mean to, like, protect humanity and allow humanity to, like, develop and mature in the way that we want to develop and mature? And then what does it mean to, like, ultimately be responsive to, um, what that process concludes, like to be correctable once humans figure out what it is we want in some domain, to like allow that understanding to ultimately affect the behavior of like this like scaffolding of automation we built up around us. There's maybe one last more technical question that comes up there where like you might think philosophy would affect the various, like the value of different kinds of resources. And there's just like some more, I think you can sort of dodge those kinds of dependence once you're more careful about these arguments. Yeah, how do you feel about uh, the idea of uh, the, the long reflection? Uh, this idea that, well, we, yeah, we don't really know what's valuable, but it seems like uh, we might have a better shot if we you know, get our best people to think about it for like thousands of years or just, just a very long time until we like, decide, well, what would be the best thing to do with all of the resources that we can, that we can get in the universe? Sound, sound idea? I think viewing it as like a step which occurs is probably not quite right, but I think I'm pretty on board with the idea. That is just like process of deliberation, understanding what is good that we're kind of currently engaged in. 
and see like most of the action in AI is like allowing that process to continue happening. I think you can view that process as like decoupled ultimately from like most of the economic, like expanding through the universe is kind of decoupled from this process of like ongoing deliberation and understanding what we want. Well, you can sort of imagine the world where like the humans are like living on earth while like out there in space, like a bunch of crazy shit is going down with like AIs waging wars and like building machines and stuff. And the humans are just like, we're doing a normal thing on earth. And like, sometimes we, me futurists used to more think of that as a sideshow where like all the action was now like off with the crazy stuff AIs are doing. And maybe our perspective is more shifted to like, Actually, that's sort of where a lot of the action is, like the overall like evolution of our values. We like choose what we like what we want to be the store of value. I don't think it's like a person going off and thinking for a thousand years. It's more like there's a trajectory along which our civilization is developing and we're like thinking about how that trajectory should be. And I think that like one of the things that happens, like one of the hopes of AI alignment is like to couple like that process of ongoing deliberation from the like process of remaining economically competitive. It's a really hard problem to understand like what that deliberation should look like. I think that's like another one of the big ways. When I said at the beginning that like it sort of slightly downgraded my overall sense of how important alignment was to other parts of the problem. A lot of that has been upweighting, like how important this kind of like making that deliberation go well is. I think that's like really from a long-term perspective, other than alignment seems like probably top priority. I think that's also worth, at the beginning when we talked about meta-ethics, we, I made this distinction between object level and meta-level influences. It's like worth bracketing. Like here we've just been diving in on the object level and I'm like happy to keep going at that. And it's worth saying briefly at the meta-level that like, I do think that your approach to alignment or like how important, how valuable different kinds of outcomes are depends on the answers to some hard ethical questions related to this, like, how much do you care about the lizard people? That's like sort of a hard question in moral philosophy. And like similar hard questions are like, how much do you care about this AI system that you're building? Like if it wants to do something totally different from humans, how much would you be like, well, we have some values, AI has some values, we're happy. I think we talked about this a little bit last time on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I think that like the answers to those kinds of moral questions does have an effect on like how you go about alignment or how you prioritize different aspects of the problem. Yeah. So, what are your views on um, moral realism and, and anti-realism, and uh, what, do, do those affect like what AI alignment work seems uh, seems most important? I'm definitely like pretty anti-realist. I think. I mean, it's like a little bit. We get a little bit into like semantic weeds here when I've had long discussions with people about it. I think there's like this question, which is sort of this question, which feels like a realist question of like, is deliberation going in the right direction? Like, I don't think you could have a version of the anti-realist perspective where you're like. It doesn't matter how you deliberate, you're going to come to some conclusions and those are fine. And I like don't endorse that. You have another version of perspective where you're like, you shouldn't deliberate, you should just endorse your current conclusions because like that's what you like. And like don't endorse that either. I'd say like, look, right now there's like some kinds of processes of deliberation and growth that I like endorse the output of. There's like some way I want our values to evolve. And like in some sense, you could say that like what I care about is like the endpoint of that deliberative process, like the endpoint of that like potentially very, very long process of like evolution, maturation. I think I like, and philosophically don't think there's like, I don't think like there'd necessarily be convergence across different, I think different processes set in motion would arrive at different conclusions. Um, but I think there is like a very, very hard problem of like having that go in the right direction. And like, it's a little bit awkward as a non-realist to be like, what does the right direction mean here? The realists have like this nice, easy answer, like it's actually converging to the good. Um, and I think that's kind of just like a linguistic thing where like they happen to have a nice, I mean, again, the whole thing is kind of like semantic differences. It's just like, there's some concepts that are slippery or hard to talk about and think about for the non-realist. But I think that's because they are in fact... Like for the realist, that's just pushed down to the slipperiness and complexity of like the actual concept of good. In terms of what I find, like my view overall on like the object level questions that might affect how prioritize different parts of alignment is like, I don't think there's that much convergence. I think it's quite plausible that like an AI would be smart and would do its own thing. And like that's somewhere between Baron universe and actually achieving like the optimal outcome. And I'm like, I don't think it's very close to Baron. I don't think it's very close to the optimal outcome. Like I sort of lean towards like a 50-50 prior for like, I'd be okay. I'd shoot it half as bad as extinction to like have some random AI doing its random thing with the universe. All right, we've been going for a while and uh, we, we should wrap up. Um, but yeah, earlier we were talking about how um, creatine could potentially make people uh, a whole lot smarter. 
Uh, well, sorry, three, three IQ points smarter. <laughs> a third of a standard deviation, it's as good as it gets potentially. But um, yeah, do, do you have any view on kind of nootropics and kind of the, the drugs and life hacking stuff that people people try to use to to, yeah, to, to, to make themselves like fitter and fitter and more intelligent? Uh, is, is, is there much mileage to be gotten out of that? So I'm definitely pretty excited about investigation where it like, it kind of feels like a thing that the medical establishment is not merely not into, but like very not into. And I think there's like a reasonable chance that there's something. I think there are like a few cases where the current state of the literature would sort of, if you took everything at face value, you'd be like, ah, it does seem like, I mean, I don't know. I think maybe Prasatam is in this position, but I'm not, not totally sure. There's like a few other possible candidates where you're like, if you actually believed all the studies and like just took that at face value, you would think that there's reasonable gains from some of these. I think like probably that's just not the case. And like sort of everyone understands that these are like sort of older studies and like there've probably been failed replications that haven't been published, but it would be like pretty nice to like go through and like check them all. And I'd be like pretty excited about that. I'm pretty interested in general. And like, I think the thing I would most like to see in general, you have this question of like, why would it be the case that some simple change to brain chemistry would improve performance, but not be made by evolution? So you sort of want to see what the what the countervailing consideration is. And that does potentially explain why it has been pretty hard to find anything that seems like it works really well. It's just, yeah, if it was if it was as easy as that, then evolution would have done it. Yeah, so I think you're going to have to exploit like some distributional change or like some cost, which is now a cost that wasn't a cost historically. I think like the two best candidates are basically like, one, you sort of can exploit this hypocrisy angle. So people like, they like have this thing they want to do, like I want to make the world better. But then there's some level at which like, your biology is not at all optimized for making the world better. It's optimized for like having descendants who have descendants. Mm-hmm. And so one thing is like, if you want to pursue like what you nominally want to do, and you can hope that like there's some drugs that just make you better at like achieving the thing that you set out to do, um, even when that thing is not like in line with the thing that your like body is optimized for achieving. I think that's like a mechanism of action in some cases and like seems like pretty realistic. And it's like something I've been really scared of. And then like the other one, the thing that would be like most satisfying and excellent would be to be like, just burns more energy. Like in the evolutionary environment, you didn't want to run your brain hot because it was like kind of a waste and you're only getting marginal benefits. But if you could just do that, that would be super great. Just, um, just overclock it because it's like, we got so much food now. It's so, cheap. so much food. Yeah. You told me like, I'm going to burn an extra 400 calories a day and be marginally like, smarter. I'm like, that's good on both sides. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that would really be the best case. Definitely. I'm a little bit confused about where stimulants stand on that. Like usually my understanding for caffeine is that like. If I take caffeine, I'm probably going to drive up blood pressure and drive up energy expenditure, at least at the beginning. And then if I keep taking it, probably within like two weeks, at least on the blood pressure side, I'm going to return to sort of baseline. And I would like to understand better like what long-term effects are on cognitive performance and on energy use. And similarly, I'd like to understand whether those long-run effects, like, you know, is it the case that if you take something over and over again, then like eventually it like stops having impact or is it the case that if you take it even once you have like a bounce back period over like the next couple of days such that like mm-hmm. the long-term effect is sort of the integral of this thing that are like showing that the integral was zero i don't know anyway it seems like kind of plausible to me there's some wins probably mostly through these two channels of like either getting you to do what you think you should do or like are trying to do or else burning more energy i have like personally not been have not prioritized experiment with that kind of thing in part because i like i'm really bad introspection and so cannot tell even if i'm in like a very altered mental state um, and partly because, I, mean, yeah, I think it's really hard to get with n equals one. Um, yeah. But I'm pretty excited about more experimentation on those things. I think it's like really hard, partly because the medical establishment really seems to hate this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of the, some of the like likely winners are also just like not legal, which sucks. It's like prima facie, like amphetamines would probably be the most natural <laughs> candidate. <laughs> well, yeah. But do you actually think they they would be good in the long run? Uh, it it, do, it does just seem like the the body is so good at adapting to to, to stimulants that most of the time, the kind of they work the first week or, or the first month, um, but then you're back to baseline and, and now you're just taking this thing uh, just to get yourself back to normal. 
and, and while almost all of these cognitive enhancers are, are legal, with, with a handful of them, like, like amphetamines, there's, there's risk of um, getting into legal trouble if you take them or, or even not being able to get a security clearance in future if, if you've taken them, uh, which is a really serious downside potentially for anyone who might want to, want to go into, into a policy career in future. Um, and people who might, you know, really want or, or need a security clearance at some point make up a, a pretty pretty large fraction of all of, our, of all of our listeners. So in those cases, it's kind of clear you should stay away. But basically, I don't recommend that people pay much attention to, to neurotropics, even the legal ones. Both because of the fact that for so many, the evidence that they work at all is, is kind of weak in the first place. Um, but then, but then also this thing that the kind of the body is so good at, at adapting to and and undoing the effect of almost anything you take uh, after the few weeks that it's unclear that there's kind of uh, sustainable sustainable gains. That's a lot of my concern, and like I mean, you could imagine. So I think people have a sense that like under so people who are like prescribed stimulants, for example, have a sense that like under repeated use you do get like some lasting advantage um, or like at least lasting treatment effect, and it'd be like good to like check whether that's actually the case or whether that's just like shuffling things around and like zero sum. It does kind of feel like once you're burning more energy, there's not really a good reason. It's like if I'm trying like to take some paracetam and just hope that I think better, there's sort of a good reason to expect to fail and then with this evolutionary argument. In the case of like a stimulant, which is like initially causing you to use more energy and think better, there's not really a great reason to expect it to break down. And so like there's hope at least. And I think like in my ideal world, you'd like really be throwing a lot of energy. Like, can we find a win here? Because it sure seems plausible. Yeah, one hope I've had is that even if the brain is so, it seems like you take a stimulant and then you get a benefit from it, and your but your body's adapting to it, and then you kind of have to like have a time when your like body de-adapts from it in order to take it again. If you like say take it all the time for a week uh, and then like don't take it for a week in order to like flush out the, the adaptation from your system, that doesn't seem so great. But potentially you could do this every day, such as you're like a bit more awake during the day and then you like de-adapt to it while you're sleeping, and that just seems kind of a potentially good good on both sides. Uh, but I'm not like sure whether the de-adaptation like over the 12 hours that you're not taking it is like really sufficient to, to, to make it worthwhile yeah I, get, I think it feels plausible to me there's something here that works it's plausible to me that you should just run with like some dumb like i thought about it a little bit on paper i tried some but i think it's like hard to do the experiments due to the combination of like medical establishment hates it the instruments are a little bit hard i think you get over that and also like the most like high leverage options probably are not going to be legal which makes it just like overall less appealing you can try this with caffeine but it seems like just probably less wins well, on that inspiring note, <laughs> my guest today has been Paul Cristiano. Uh, thanks for coming back on the podcast, Paul. Yeah, thanks for having me. As you would expect, there's lots of links in the blog post attached to this episode uh, to papers and articles where you can learn uh, a lot more about the things uh, we covered over the last two hours. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, uh, in the show notes, uh, we link to a 40-minute MP3 uh, where Paul and I have a particularly confusing and slightly bonkers conversation about decision theory uh, and what it might mean if some uh, non-standard solutions turn out to be uh, on the mark. I uh, don't especially recommend listening to it, which is why we cut it from the episode. But people who are particularly interested in decision theory uh, might enjoy it, uh, I guess, either to learn how we think about the problem or maybe as an unintentional comedy. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.